Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Movie Change Up Podcast. I'm your host for this evening, Joe Fricky. Uh, this is our first ever championship match, and if you've never watched our show before and don't know what we do, uh, basically each week, two people go head-to-head pitching reboots to seven movies. Uh, it's usually movies we love, love to hate, or maybe even movies we've potentially forgotten about. And to go along with those seven movies, we also have seven rules. Uh, usually the judges and... Uh, uh, come up with the seven movies and the seven rules that they have to pair. You can't use a rule more than once, and you have to use every single rule. Uh, but this being a championship match, we changed things up, did things a little bit differently. Uh, I, as one of the judges, came up with two movies. Uh, Bobby, our other judge, came up with two movies. Uh, the champion, Johnny, uh, he came up with one movie. And then the challenger, Tristan, he came up with two movies as well. So that was kind of our method here. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host and fellow judge, uh, Bobby. Bobby, kind of what were your thoughts in the movie you picked? Because well, I, I forgot to bring this up. The kind of category for this episode is Oscar winner. So this is a movie that won an Oscar in any category. It could have won for like costume design, could have won for cinematography, maybe an acting category, but, but it just had to win one Oscar. So Bobby, was there any kind of thought process in the movies you chose? Yeah, I wanted to kind of pick one that that might, or at least a couple that would kind of diversify the group a little bit, before I knew the group at least, Um, go with something a little outside the box. Um, One's definitely a classic, and one I think is an action classic, Um, and I think that they would, I think they should be fun pitches. Um, But yeah, I tried to go a little bit outside of the straight up, you know, Oscar dramas for the most part to try to get some fun pitches out of it. Yeah, I went for yeah. I kind of did the same thing. I went for a classic and then a more fun movie. So it'll be interesting to see what they did for that. Uh, Tristan, you're the challenger for this match. You've been on a hot streak. You were very close to being one and four, but you won two games in a row, and that you beat Bobby and you beat me, and that brought you here. So was there any thought process in the movies you picked? And are you how are you feeling now? Are you thinking this hot streak's going to continue, or do you think Johnny the Champion might derail this hot streak? Look, Johnny's sitting here thinking he's hot shit, but I can feel I can feel the tension from here. You know, across the state lines of of the country, I can feel the sweat coming from Johnny's brow right now. He knows he's 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 going down. You know, I wore this shirt today, this scream shirt, because it's going to be a slaughter. And by the end, Johnny is going to be the one screaming. It's going to be a death match here. It's going down. Prepare for a seven and zero. Maybe they'll give Johnny one or two to make him feel good. But in my mind, all of mine are winners. So let's see how this goes. All right, and uh, Johnny, you actually lost your last match, but it wasn't a championship match, so you still hold the title. Uh, what was your thought process in picking your movie, and what's your kind of thought thoughts going on coming out of a loss for the first time since the first episode? I mean, as far as picking my movie goes, I pick something that I have a uh, probably more of a knowledge on than anyone else in this show that I didn't really show my hand on anyone, that I've read the book, seen the movie, I know a lot about it, so I'm going to see if that helps or hurts me picking something I know more about uh, than anyone else, or if it uh, you know hurts me because I stay faithful to more of what I know of the story, and uh, the judges don't really know it as much. So that's kind of my thought process as far as that goes. As far as Tristan talking to shit over there, Tristan, you started this rivalry on the very last episode of season one. This has been a championship match in the making ever since Tristan's declaration that he is not here to play around anymore. He is out here to prove that he is right and everyone else is wrong. Those are Tristan's words. That's what he said. And Mm -hmm. 
not against me, it hasn't. And I came here to prove Tristan that to be able to talk the talk like Tristan tries to do, you need to be able to walk the walk, which he has not done. I have gotten a repeat of role in multiple matches against Tristan. I've never lost to Tristan. One day I will lose to Tristan, but today is not that day. This is the first official championship match of our show, and I have come here with seven of the strongest pitches I have ever brought onto an episode of the show, and today I will prove who the rightful champion of Movie Changeup is. If by some miracle Tristan beats me today, I won't be a sore loser. I will shake his hand over fucking Zoom and tell him congratulations because if Tristan beats me today, he will have earned it, unlike my only other two losses on this show that I didn't really give a shit about. Tristan, you're going to have a lot of work today to beat me, and you're not going to be able to do it. I wish the championship belt was delivered today, but looks like it's getting here on Friday. So, Strong words. Strong words from the champion. All right. And uh, without further ado, let's reveal our movies and rules to the audience. Now, if they're watching on video, they can see them on our left and right. But if you're watching on a podcast form, you might not know what our movies and rules are. So... Our seven movies today are 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1954. Uh, let me pull up what that won an Oscar for. And uh, remind me tomorrow, computer, to update. I don't need to know right now. Um, so 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1954. Uh, we got Cocoon from 1985. The Constant Gardener from 2005. Cool Hand Luke from 1967. Harry and the Hendersons from 1987. Shakespeare in Love from 1998, and Speed from 1994. And Bobby, right. do you have the uh, seven rules for today's episode? I do. Uh, I'm a particular fan of our first rule, which is one must be set in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Uh, we also have one must resurrect a director's career. One must be directed and star the nominees of the 86th Academy Awards. One must be a Muppet movie. One must be a dad movie. One must be a Charlie Chaplin silent film. And one must be centered around a holiday. Those are seven rules for the day. All right. Uh, interesting. So before the uh, before we started recording, uh, we had a little competition to see who would get the first pick. And Johnny won that competition. So, Johnny, what movie are we doing first and who's doing their pitch first? We're going to start with Speed um, from 1994. And I'm going to have Tristan go first. All right. Speed was actually uh, Bobby's selection so he is going to be judging this round uh for those that don't know how the judging works basically for the two movies that i picked i will be judging for the two movies that bobby picked he will be judging and then bobby and i will collaborate together for the three movies that tristan and johnny picked so speed came out in 1994 i got a 94 percent on rotten tomatoes which is a little bit higher than i expected uh to fit for today's episode it won the oscar for best sound and best sound effects editing uh the overall plot of the movie is los angeles police officer jack played by keanu reeves angers retired bomb squad member howard Payne, played by dennis hopper by fooling his attempt at taking hostages in revenge Payne arms a bus with a bomb that will explode if it drops below 50 miles per hour with the help of spunky passenger annie played by sandra bullock Jack and his partner Harry, played by Jeff Daniels, try to save the people on the bus before the bomb goes off, while also trying to figure out how Payne is monitoring them. And, uh, alright, what's your pitch? Alright, so for my pitch, the rule that I use is that it's centered around a holiday, and the holiday that I picked is New Year's Eve. Uh, uh, essentially, the premise is that there's a 
crowded Greyhound bus doing a overnight trip on New Year's Eve from San Francisco all the way to Chicago, and they had to they get taken hostage by essentially like a saw-like figure who has taken over the bus and is kind of speaking to them through the speakers, and he says you got to make it to Chicago by midnight New Year's or I'm going to blow up your bus. So that essentially becomes like a race across the country on New Year's Eve to get this bus to Chicago in time. And my director for this is Michael Mann. I think he'd pull off a really good kind of tight crime thriller. I think he's due for a nice kind of return to form, and I think this could be a good one for him. Uh, Jack, who is a cop vet in mine, who gets kind of this caught. He's on the bus traveling across the country like normal. He's off duty, and he just happens to wake kind of into the situation. Is played by Dave Batista, and the bus driver who be, who's sort of like the partner in crime of him on this story is played by Sally Hawkins. And the terrorist who took over the bus is played by James Spader. He does a lot of voiceover performance in the movie. He kind of is kind of like speaking through this uh, bus and taking them over and have, has them under control. Uh, and then throughout this movie, they're trying to, uh, the bus, uh, the saw guy is kind of taking them and giving them challenges saying, oh, you got to get around this guy. You got to get over this thing in time. You got to like, as they're going along, he's threatening them, saying, oh, I'm going to do this if we don't do this, and they're upping the ante as they go along on this thing, seeing how far they can go. And there's a briefcase that's discovered uh, by Dave Batista's character that has a bomb in it, or I mean, like a detonator in it for a bomb in it, and James Spader announces that that detonator is to a bomb on a different bus going from Chicago to San Francisco at the same time, and he tells them, oh, if you hit this button on this detonator, we'll blow up the other bus and you you guys are good to go. You, you're disarmed. So they have this like more dilemma throughout the second half of this movie of do we press this button, do we not? And you get this little bit of like the people on the bus, the passengers kind of turning against each other and arguing and Dave Bautista's character having to calm them down and be that kind of man in the middle who is in over his head like a John McClane style character, but he's trying to keep these people, all these people calm on this uh on this thrill ride of this bus and i think that would just be a really fun action adventure and i wanted to pay tribute to that kind of jump scene we get in the original not an action adventure it's kind of like an action thriller and chicago has all these bridges that come up in the city that kind of separate them up essentially like islands over the chicago river so i wanted to get kind of towards the end you get that jump shot of the bridge is going up and it's up and up and they know they're not going to make it if they don't jump this bridge so Dave Bautista has to drive the bus and jump over that bridge and give us like a nice final jump shot that pays tribute to a shot from the original. And you just get a fun Michael Mann crime thriller set on this bus, taken over by Jane Spader. I think it could be a fun vehicle for Batista as an actor, and I'd like to see it uh, from Michael Mann as well. All right. All right. Yeah. So Tristan and I went different ways. He, wa- he wanted to pay a lot of homage to the original. Didn't update a ton. And I went a completely different direction with the movie because I am making Speed, which won for Best Sound Mixing and Sound Editing. I am making that a Charlie Chaplin silent film, which at first maybe you question Speed as this movie, but I will read you my pitch. So my pitch, uh, which the only other person I put as far as casting goes, there's a woman on the bus that's played by Paulette Goddard, uh, who is in Modern Times with Charlie Chaplin, who stars and directs my film. So, Charlie Chaplin, as the lovable but hopeless tramp, gets turned down by the woman he he admires. Heartbroken, he waits for a bus. He boards and sits down in the back, hanging his head. After sitting in the bus, moping for a bit, he sees commotion in the front of the speeding bus. 
He walks up to the front, avoiding passengers falling down around him. He grabs the seats and makes his way forward. The driver of the bus is slamming on the brakes, but they are not working. The tramp, now at the front of the bus, sees them about to crash into a car. The bus driver throws his hands over his eyes. The tramp spins the wheel, and they narrowly avoid the car. Smiling, he turns to the bus driver, but with a look of horror on his face, he realizes the driver has fainted. He moves the driver out of the seat, and while steering with his foot, places the driver on the front seat. The movie plays out with the tramp narrowly avoiding accidents while the bus continues forward and is not able to stop. After a few classic practical stunts, the tramp gets an idea seeing the lady behind him has an empty cup with a straw. The tramp has the lady uh, take the wheel, grabs the straw, and climbs out of the moving bus. He holds on to the windows while the lady swerves to avoid traffic. He is nearly thrown off the bus multiple times, but miraculously stays on in exciting Charlie Chaplin ways. Using the windows, he climbs uh, to the bus's gas tank, opens it, and starts to uh, chiffon out the gas with the straw. Um, while making some disgusted faces, the tramp manages to get quite a lot of gas out of the bus before a bump in the road makes him drop it. The bus is headed straight for a train on the tracks ahead. The passengers cover their eyes, but the bus slows down, barely touching the train track gates as it comes to a stop. The tramp, wiping sweat off his forehead, gets off where the lady uh, who took the wheel runs out of the bus and kisses him. Finally feeling joy, the tramp smiles, but the lady turns away, keels over, and off screen she vomits from the taste of the gasoline. The film cuts to the tramp looking bemused and the credits roll. And that is my Charlie Chaplin version of Speed. All right. Uh, I don't know if you have any questions, Bobby, but I have a question for Tristan. I do too, but you can go first. Uh, We might have the same. So Tristan, the plot of the original is like you can't get, you can't go under 50 mile an hour, which is... Uh, it basically also forces the passengers on the bus to be trapped but with yours going from san francisco to chicago like they definitely have to stop at certain places for gas so what's to stop everyone from just getting off of the bus well because uh, that's part of the the uh thing that james Spader tells him is like nobody can get off the bus like you can you can stop but you guys every passenger has to make it from point a to point b by midnight or you blow the bus gets blown up like that's kind of the, the rules of the thing so as part of it is like that it's different from the original like they can't it's not just like oh you have to go fast and not stop but they have to like how do we stop and get fuel how do we make it to that in time while still managing to stop and still managing to get the maintain the bus and that kind of thing i think it could be more interesting than just literally you can't stop but like you have to make it in this certain time maybe there's ways you can cut around things like that all right that's the only question i had okay um, and mine for Tristan and Johnny is it's like he gave his whole movie, so I don't really have any questions about it. But you know, it's definitely I'm not like leaning a particular direction right now. But for Tristan, just the uh, the casting of Bautista, I, I like him a lot. Um, and you compared him to John McClane, but I feel like he's the John McClane's the best when he's like the everyman, and Bautista does not look like an everyman. Um, so I guess kind of you can just defend it here and then talk about it as you fight kind of your your choice of of Dave Bautista in that role. Well, he's talked a lot in the last uh, few months, especially about how much he wants to break out of like what he's known for as being this big brute force kind of guy, and he wants to get into roles. He said like roles people will cry over and things like think that will be totally out of his league of what you think from wrestlers. So I wanted to give him a chance to do that, and I think we've seen him like in uh, Blade Runner. He seems pretty everyman. Like you can dress him down to look kind of like an everyman guy, and he's still kind of like a cop who's 
supposed to look a bit he's like he's he's trained he's he has the combat skill so he's i think he fits that role pretty well and i think it would be a chance for him to kind of break his type and like he said he wants to do and get out of that zone of just being like the big wrestler guy okay all right well that's all i had yeah. um it's definitely split i'm not leaning either way really right now um i don't know as much about chaplin maybe as joe does but it sounds like a good movie to me um, yeah, and, and one of the things Tristan sounds fun. One of the things I looked up just so it's not a fight because I was concerned about it. I looked up when buses were invented, and it was because I was yeah, like, were, were buses were buses a thing yeah. then? Because that would be a big nail in Johnny's thing. Yeah. But I looked it up; buses existed, so that's not. Yeah, they've been so did it, so did straws. I looked up everything involved in my plot <laughs> to make sure they existed at the yeah. time. I was like, would there have been like a cup with a straw? Because that was key to the plot, and there there were so. I, I researched all of that, made yeah. sure buses existed. And and I think, and that's why I explained like him climbing on the windows is because if you look up buses around that time, they would, you, you could imagine him doing that. It's not like a modern day bus where all the windows are closed. Like it's kind of yeah. open. He can, you can see him kind of doing those stunts. All right. Um, all right. All right. Yeah. So He's... I'm going to, if Bobby's cool with that, five minutes on the clock, you guys can fight it out and then we will determine our winner from that. I guess yep. Bobby will determine. So, yeah, five minutes on the clock, starting now. Fight it out. Real quick, I'll start. I, I mean, Tristan, I think his movie made would have made a little more sense if he was resurrecting his director's uh, career because Michael Mann hasn't done anything worthwhile in almost 20 years now since Collateral in, like, 2004. Um, the only thing he's done decent since then was uh, probably Public Enemies, which was fine. Um, but other than that, he's made, like, the bad Chris Hemsworth movie and nothing he's done is even very good um so if he said i'm resurrecting his career okay but his rule choice doesn't make sense to me because i don't see the significance it's supposed to be centered around the holiday and at least with die hard you have all these themes of christmas and you can say it's a christmas movie because it's centered around that first of all new year's eve is a way different thing you're not going to have all these christmas elements sprinkled in throughout the movie like die hard so it's kind of just it's it's just a thrown away line of like oh, like, I kind of didn't have a rule for this. And I feel like you wrote a pitch resurrecting two different directors' career and then forgot and then just made it a throwaway line about this being a New Year's movie. And, like, nothing about your movie says New Year's. The other thing is, besides Michael Mann being a bad director now, you just stole this, the button thing from The Dark Knight and are just making a two-hour version of that movie, and I don't need to see that. It's a good scene in The Dark Knight, but I don't need to see a whole plot of do we destroy this bus and save our lives or what. It's just... It just overall feels kind of lazy, and I think mine is creative. It's unique. It's something that we saw elements of from Charlie Chaplin doing a lot of stunt work that was popular in silent films and with his character of the tramp, um, and it just makes for a, a better movie. Yours just sounds like the Point Break remake that was pointless. It didn't add anything to the story, and it was just a poor modern-day telling of it. I think that mine sounds like a good return to form from Michael Mann, and I think he's done some interesting stuff. I think he's been so consistent, like some of his recent stuff has been great but it's all been like enjoyable and watchable and i thought i thought public enemies is pretty good and i would think it, this could be a chance for him to get more grounded and like okay here's a low budget here's just you and a couple of actors and essentially on this bus trip for this whole movie and getting back to that kind of like sleek look he has he really pulls off like sleek and stylish kind of look and i think that would be good for this uh to get like those landscape shots of them driving along and Getting, a, getting like the way to shine all these different places that they're going and get the most out of these limited locations. I think that would be a good for Michael Mann. I also really like my cast. I think James Spader has that presence where he could be very threatening over, this, over just his voice. And 
I think Dave Batista, like I mentioned, would be a really good chance for him to break out and do something interesting with his career. And I think Michael Mann is that kind of a director who can bring some bring in an actor like uh, Dave Batista and be like, oh, here's your chance to like perform with a little bit of gold and see what you're gonna get. You know, and that would be a fun opportunity for him. And you mentioned that mine doesn't play into New Year's, but I think it does. Like the whole element of you're on this trip trying to make it home just time for New Year's, and of course you're still gonna have the holiday stuff sprinkled around. Like you're what five days not even after Christmas at this point. Like it's still a holiday season. You're gonna be uh, there's gonna be like holiday decorations and that kind of stuff coming around. And there's also like the theme of like oh Christmas is over, so it's kind of being like the decorations are being taken down. And you're slowly moving on towards the new year, and they gotta make it just in time for New Year's. Like that gives it that kind of backdrop of new year's eve you know if it plays into new year's eve without being like the whole entire plot is formatted yeah, but, around new year's eve my, my thing is this like if you're going to center it around the holiday i think you should bring in some themes of that like die hard has a lot of christmas themes that's why you can say it's a christmas movie rather than like one uh whatever lethal weapon one or two when it's a it's set around christmas but it plays absolutely no part of the story or the characters or the the plot at all that's what yours more sounds like. If you had tied it to a holiday and made it Dave Bautista is starting new, he has been a criminal and now he is starting new because it's New Year's and you kind of tie those themes in. That's one thing. You don't really have that element. You also just, again, you just stole the plot of one scene from The Dark Knight. Doesn't sound interesting. Basically, your movie sounds like every bad reboot that gets made. Like, okay, but what if we made Speed, but there are two buses instead of one? Sweet. Bacon's great. And, like, that's what your movie sounds like. And, like, I think you could have gone in more interesting ways. If you didn't go the way that I went, made it completely different than the original, made it a new fun thing, you could have set it in the future, done it in space, done all these cool different elements, and yours just sounds like more of the same, but now there's two buses. And, like, at least have, you know, you should have had James Spader on the bus and, like, change the elements up so it's not just, like, the voice coming out. Like, there's so many ways I could take your movie and make a good movie around it, but I don't think you have any elements that make it unique enough from the original like they said it's 94 percent around tomatoes the original is a classic action movie i think you have to go yeah and i made my the same like story it's a classic action movie you threw out but, but there's a difference you, but you didn't you're you just didn't like keep oh something's it. going fast you know, there's a speeding bus if you're if you're rebooting if you're rebooting a classic if you're rebooting a classic there's two ways if to you're go. Rebooting you a keep the same story but you change the settings okay you're not fucking stop talking if i'm talking it's no, been five it's minutes. I don't know, Bobby, if you have your... Bobby, or it's been... I, yeah, I, I think I have... Decision? I, yeah, I know where I, I'm leaning. Mine. All right, yeah, I'll let you go first, Joe. I think I'm, I know where I'm going with it. Do you want me to read the live comments first, or do you want me to wait? Uh, you can read it. I saw Paul put one in there, and I think Spinner uh, put yeah. one as well. Yeah, uh, Spinner58 said that she loves Johnny's pitch, and then Paul, whatever, 220-220, said that uh, Johnny pitched a movie he'd want to see and he asked Johnny if he's seen Harold Lloyd's uh, silent film stunts. My thing is uh, I I like Johnny's direction of like the silent film. I could picture everything in my head at fit speed, but I feel like it also fit a Charlie Chaplin movie. Uh, and I agree with a lot of Johnny's takedowns of Tristan's thing. Like I still am not fully seeing like why they can't just get off the bus, like why they can't just pull off. I mean, from San Francisco to Chicago, why they can't just pull off in a field somewhere and just get off the bus. And he's like, oh, he didn't get it there in time. I'm going to blow up the bus. It's like, okay. And then uh, just that I wasn't seeing a lot, a lot of the rule usage of centered around a holiday. And then just the whole Dave Batista casting, like Tristan said, he wanted, you know, Dave Batista wants more emotional roles and be seen more as just the action guy. So I don't know if putting him in a reboot of speed is like 
the way to do that. So my vote would be for Johnny. Yeah, and and overall, that is that's pretty much where I landed too. I think Johnny's pretty much just uh, fell into place. Like I could picture his entire movie, and I knew exactly what it was. It all worked out well. Tristan's, I loved a lot of elements. I really liked the um, uh, Spader over the the speaker. I thought that was a really good element that could be a little creepy. Um, and I liked the premise. Uh, and I and I do think Michael Mann's due for like a a good action um, movie, but. I think Dave Bautista, I would rather see a more everyman type person as a cop in the role instead of a big jacked type of guy. Um, and the plot just didn't really fall into place as well as the New Year's Eve theme. So uh, I'm going with Johnny as well to put him up one nothing. All right. There we go. All right, Tristan, you're down. Uh, so it's your pick. What movie are we going Let's with? Let's go uh, with Cocoon next. Who's going first? John, I can go first. He likes to talk. All right. Let me go to my thing. Cocoon was my pick, so this will be my turn to judge. Cocoon came out in 1985, got a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes, won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for Don Amici, and won for Visual Effects, which is what qualifies it for this episode. It's an Oscar-winning fantasy in which the residents of a Florida rest home get a new lease of life when they stumble across an alien fountain of youth in a disused holiday home. Unbeknown to them, aliens have been using the swimming pool in the house to store their cocooned brethren, giving the waters a powerful, rejuvenating quality. There you go. All right, Cocoon. Um, like my last movie, I had the entire plot written out. This is one that I'll be doing some improvising on, so we'll see uh, where that takes me. Because I'm setting Cocoon in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Um so another rule, maybe when you look on paper, it doesn't seem to fit, but I think I have a cool idea for it. Um, I'm happy to hear that Joe picked this because my director is John Favreau. Um, who I do think can make uh, the type of film that I'm doing in a cool, interesting way. I think he's a director that maybe can't step out of his comfort zone too far, but if he's doing a movie with elements that he cares for, makes a good movie. Um, see Elf and things like that. Um, uh, my main characters are Art, played by Gaten uh, Matarazzo from Stranger Things, Ben, played by Julian Dennison, um, Joe, played by Ty Simpkins from Jurassic World, Viola, which is Joe's girlfriend, played by Yara Shahidi from Blackish, and Walter, played by Jacob Batalon from uh, the Spider-Man movies mainly. And my Willy Wonka, I agree with Bobby's original pitch of Mortal Kombat. I think the best actor today to be Willy Wonka is Taika Waititi, so he is my Willy Wonka. So this is my pitch, um, and we'll see where it takes me. Uh, Wonka's uh, Wonka's Rejuvenating Chocolate Bars, the new hit product from the largest candy manufacturer in the world, promises to give new life force to customers who eat them. These candy bars make people younger. People start giving them to their ailing grandparents, making them younger and spry. The news is all the rage, uh, talking about the magic of the new candy product, uh, branding them Wonka's Miracle Bars. It, uh, so my characters in the film are all older people, but they eat the candy bars. It makes them younger. That's why all my stars are around 20 years old, um, because that they're going to eat the candy bars. They're going to be in the wonderment, just like the original cocoon of the people finding the um, pool with the, with the cocoon in it. And what happens is all of a sudden Wonka stops selling these candy bars and these people are trying to figure out why 
Um, they, the main characters don't want to age again, so it's going to become a little bit of um, not as much a heist film, but more of them breaking into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, which I think could make an awesome sequence that we've never seen anything where you have these kind of candy-related security sequences in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory of people trying to sneak in and instead of like a giant boulder like an Indiana Jones, it's a giant jawbreaker that they have to run away from and things like that. I think those would be cool little fun action sequences. And then when they get inside, uh, basically it's revealed that the candy bars got their power from cocoons of, of an alien species from putting it in the chocolate river to make these candy bars. And Willy Wonka stopped making them because he was visited by these aliens and they told him that if these are diluted, they cannot travel uh, back to their planet with them. So they, uh, so he stopped producing the candy bars and they haven't taken the cocoons yet. So the characters are basically given a choice. Do you want to stay on earth and age, or do you want to travel back to the planet with the, um, with the aliens and live, basically live forever and use their powers uh, for your wonder? Um, because I didn't want to change the elements of the original cocoon. It's like friendly aliens, basically. I don't want to make it aliens attacking or anything like that to keep it faithful, but I changed a lot of the other elements. And in the end, you get kind of the emotional scene of, Joe, who's played by Ty Simpkins, and dating Yara Shahidi's character, choosing to go with the aliens while she stays on Earth um, because he wants to basically live forever. So you get kind of that emotional scene um, of kind of the, you know, I choose my life over our life together, even though in this world they have been together for years and years because originally they were an older couple. So you get kind of those those elements. You kind of deal with loss and things like that that are in. This would be more of like a PG-style comedy um and i think it would it would uh do wonders and and taika watiti as willy wonka wouldn't have a huge role but he'd be in it as soon as they enter the factory and i think he would uh be a fun modern day willy wonka so that is my cocoon all right and yeah fun fact you know the secret ingredient to wonka's wonder bars cocoon nut <laughs> uh, i saw joe smiling and i feel like he thought of that joke halfway through my i did and it was just holding on yeah. to it yeah i was like what's sure. making joe smile over there and i knew <laughs> that it had to have been his joke he thought of <laughs> all right uh tristan what is your pitch for cocoon i went in a different direction you know i actually followed the original movie a little bit unlike giant uh, so did I. uh for my rule i use resurrect the director's career and the director whose career I resurrected is Frank Darabont, mostly off his work on The Mist and then The Walking Dead as well. I think he can pull off like practical body horror type uh, thrills really well, and especially practical effects. Uh, so when a family goes on a trip to visit their grandparents at a childhood lake home, uh, they're shocked to discover that their grandparents seem to have gotten much younger and healthier over the summer, and they're not quite sure why so you know like the grandpa who was dealing with heart problems is now you know jogging and doing yard work and the grandma who was walking with a walker last year is now able to like run marathons and, and walk around the house and she's doing fine and they're like this is kind of strange i'm not sure what's going on here so they kind of investigate it for a little bit and the grandparents reveal to them that the lake at this lake house when they swim in it they came out the next morning and they woke up and they were young again and they were healthier, just a little bit healthier. So they went back in the next morning and did it again, a little bit healthier, did it again, a little bit healthier. And they realized this lake next to the lake house has this sort of inexplicable fountain of youth power to uh, make them younger and younger. 
So the family does that and tests it out themselves. And it's even more poignant for them. Like even just the same night, they started to get younger and they're saying, wow, this is such a powerful uh, thing. We can't tell people about this. We got to like figure out what to do. You know, they're trying to keep it just to themselves because if they get if this gets out there, like this could be something that really uh, changes the way that people look at the world. But of course, each member of the family kind of starts spreading around, telling one friend or telling the other friend about what's happening. And then over the course of the movie, like one or two more people, two more people, three more people, four more people, like it starts to add up and more and more people have found out about this like and are going in this like and becoming youthful again. And every time it's used, it's more and more instantly effective. Like it's not having to go over the course of days like it was for the grandparents. It's over the course of hours and over the course of minutes by the end. And it gets out of hand and everyone just starts like, it's like this battle for power essentially at this lake house. And as they ran this, uh, ran this lake drive, its abilities, people are kind of diving down trying to figure out what it is and that's at the point where they uncovered that it was a crashed alien ufo that crashed into this lake and now there are cocooned aliens down at the bottom of this lake who are kind of just absorbing the energy off of people to charge themselves so over the course of this movie all the de-aging that's been happening has been being used to charge these aliens and now that they've gotten the, their power they're kind of sending it back so all the people who were de-aged their bodies are starting to like decay and fall apart and boil and burn and I imagine like the way he used the effects in The Walking Dead, you'd have similar stuff here. Like you'd be able to really lead, lead into that practical effect and have them just be falling apart and boiling and burning. And then uh, just the one main teenage girl is the one who's able to escape. And essentially everybody else is just kind of stuck at this lighthouse and she gets out on her car and drives away. But you have this sort of ambiguous ending similar to The Mist where it's like they're not quite sure what's next and who's left in the house is just... She knows she's escaped, and she doesn't know what to do next. And that's my pitch for Cocoon. All right. And did you have any cast or anything? Oh, I skipped my cast. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, the, the main daughter, the one who's sort of the lead of the movie, is Caitlin Dever. Okay. You know her from mm -hmm. Booksmart. Yeah. I think she's great in that. And then I got a couple of the regulars who worked with Frank Darabont before. So uh, uh, the grandpa is played by Jeffrey, Jeffrey DeMond. You'd know him as Dale from The Walking Dead. He was also in... The Mist, he's the old guy who had the RV in season one or two of The Walking Dead. He's kind of a Frank Darabont regular. And another Frank Darabont regular is also a Walking Dead cast member, Melissa McBride, Carol from The Walking Dead. I have her as the grandma. And then I have Lori Holden, another Walking Dead cast member. They were all, they all joined the show because they were Darabont people and then eventually left after he left. So that I consider them like Darabont regulars. So that's my cast. And of course, over the, like, since... Jeffrey DeMond's an older guy, but over the course of the movie, he's de-aging, so we kind of had that practical effect on him where he's, you get to see him kind of de-age. I think that would be interesting. But yeah, that's my cast for that. All right. Uh, Bobby, do you have any questions for either of them? Not really. I, I got a, a decent picture of both movies, um, so I think I'm just ready to hear him fight, but I know it's your movie, so if you have anything specific, you can ask it for sure. Uh, I do not, so I will put five minutes on the clock and let them fight it out. I'll let Tristan start. I started last time. All right, so what I'll say about yours is <coughs> I think what makes sci-fi and cocoon and stuff like that serious and interesting is, like, the innovation of the genre. Like, sci-fi is a genre where people can push things forward and do new things and be really creative, and I just don't think your director 
is the director to be that like he doesn't get out of his comfort zone you mentioned it in your own pitch and uh, you, you mentioned uh, like he last time we worked in sci-fi it was what cowboys versus aliens like i don't trust him to come back into like the sci-fi world i think it's kind of a waste to take like a sci-fi premise and just throw it into willy wonka and i think it just kind of like doesn't really mesh in my mind like i think willy wonka is like the fantastical fantasy i think when you give that like a science root it kind of kills the fantasy of Willy Wonka. Like, really, Wonka is like a surrealist kind of movie where nothing really is explained and everything's kind of just absurd. I think when you start adding in, like, a sci-fi element to that, you get rid of that, like, fantasy element of what it is. It's like adding metachorians to Star Wars, you know? It suddenly is answers to the questions that didn't need to have answers. I don't think... I mean, it's not like I'm answering questions that were questions in movies from the past. I'm not throwing in how they made everlasting gobstoppers and all that stuff that's unnecessary. I'm making... A new interesting way it's it's a take on cocoon that is faithful to the original in terms of the story with interesting characters and in terms of the tone because instead of making it a horror movie about people's faces melting i kept the what i think made cocoon interesting and what made it different than a lot of the movies uh that we've seen in sci-fi are the reasons that people love close encounters of third kind the reasons that people love the original cocoon and the people that you know most of the people that loved arrival is because it's a movie that deals with basically aliens that are basically here and they're friendly and they're not danger to people, um, but they have this kind of magic and and stuff like that that I think deals well with uh, with Willy Wonka's uh, chocolate factory. And I think the rejuvenating chocolate bars is cool. Um, Bobby kind of knocked mine when we fought because I made Willy Wonka like the basically the evil mayor of. Uh, um, Amity Island, and this I stuck with him making the right choice. And as soon as finding out, like, oh, I'm I'm harming these friendly aliens, like I didn't know, you know, that I was harming them or what these cocoons really were. Um, he stops making them, and and I think my movie still deals with a lot of the themes of the original. Yours just sounds like the exact plot of the original movie. You took out all of the comedy, and then you just made it a horror movie, and then made Frank Darabont, who's outside of the mist, which was fine, never really done anything that you could say is like that scary like he makes dad movies just like ron howard he did the green mile and he did the shawshank redemption no, I think I dad was terrifying I in that first he did one episode he did one episode he, of the walking dead season. and that's the only thing he's directed in he did the entire first season he's no, he that did show. one episode he was so anyway and the that walking dead show. sucks and the walking dead first season was it bad sucks. so i don't know why it went off it went off that show i tried watching the walking dead the first like three episodes and I was like, this is terrible. I'm out. Um, And honestly, yeah, because I'm the fucking champion. Um, Anyway, I I think mine provides, like, you knock John Favreau and say he's never dealt with sci-fi. Mine outside of the alien thing, it deals with a little sci-fi, but I think if you look at John Favreau's career, you mentioned he's good at doing uh, the fantastical stuff. Like, Elf, it's a fantastical world. You have similar comedy to what I'm going for, and you have a story that's four families and it works out and that's probably the best movie he's ever done and that's a great movie iron man's a great movie the jungle book is a great movie you say that you can't deal with you know he doesn't step out of his comfort zone tell me that the jungle book is in the same level of comfort zone as elf or any of the other movies he's done it's way different i think he does have range as a director i know you don't like him but i think the other people on this show realize that john favreau has more range than i think people give him credit for and i think this is more of a return to form for him than anything else of him stepping out of his comfort zone. I thought I, I wrote my pitch and then picked a director because I thought that it sounded like a good Favreau movie. 
I think mine sounds like an interesting direction to take a coon because you're still in, you're still within you're the same genre the same, of the original. Though. But it's not the same. You you said, oh, you're making the same it's the two minutes. things in that I changed. Like I changed the tone. I changed like the whole style of it. It's not really like a horror. It has a horror comedy elements of like the gore and the over the top kind of like effects. But it's not really a comedy. Like it's just a straight horror kind of gore that's, movie. That's my that's problem funny. with it. You said you stayed loyal to the original, but I did. You I just took the same plot and, and then you changed the entire. Make it different. No. It's called remaking the movie. But the difference but is, I mean, I if, if, the they came, if they came out with but did something different with it in the tone and the style no, and the basically the entire plot took anything that made your movie stand out as something different than what we've seen in sci-fi. Every sci-fi movie, like. If you look at them, the majority of them end up being these horror movies and aliens are bad and all this stuff. And I think what makes Cocoon cool is that it's different than that. It's like Close Encounters. If they made a Close Encounters movie now and it was a horror movie, people would be like, what the fuck is this shit? The only reason and I think what you're missing about mine movie, is that the aliens are not like. But they're not. But you're, they're just, but your whole just tone. At the bottom. They're not actively attacking people. They're just there. They're like a passive force in this story. I think that's what's interesting about it is they're not like. These attackers destroying the planet. They just crash land there. They just happen to be there, and then they're not. They're not actively part. They're not the ones attacking the planet. They just are passerbyers in the story, similar to like some of the best sci-fi out there. Like the aliens are not the ones fighting. It's about the people, and then the, the aliens are just kind of like a means of that happening. And I think, I, that I, is I think if you take present in mind, because they're just literally the main, at the bottom of the ocean or at the bottom of the, the lake. main. The main point of the original movie is basically. You, you give people choices. Like, what is more important to you? Your life on Earth, the people you care about, or basically living forever and having this different life and going somewhere unknown, but accepting that choice and elongating your life and living with this magic that you were kind of given taste to. And I think that's a story that we haven't really seen. And your movie, turning that magic into it's killing people, takes out any cool element that Cocoon had, makes it very generic, mm-hmm. and... You also picked a director that hasn't done anything interesting in over a decade again um, with, like, Michael Mann. The entire I mean, theme was good in the, the 90s. Movie is a theme it. that I have in my movie. Like, if they just kept to themselves and, and themselves forever, they would have been fine, but they had to spread it around. They couldn't just keep it to themselves. They couldn't be the only ones with the power of mortality. They had to tell people, and they had to tell people, they had to tell people, they had to tell people, like, that's the theme of the movie. If they just kept it to themselves, if they just... Uh, said okay maybe i can live forever but i won't be able to do it with my friends and my family it'll just be me like that and then every person who makes that choice to spend it to one next person is is slowly but surely leads it to this point where they start dying at the end and i think if like if it would have just been the grandparents and maybe even just the family they could have been able to last but the fact that they spread it around to the rest of the community is what ultimately pushes them over the edge all right it's been five minutes uh bobby what are your thoughts after hearing them debate it out I didn't. So, Tristan's movie, his genre that he went with, is definitely more of the genre and the style of movie that I like more. But I feel like Johnny's came together better. But it's in a genre and a style of movie I don't like as much. Um, so I'm a little split. Um, I, I guess if I'm leaning a particular direction, it is Johnny a little bit, just because I feel like his movie did come together and did something a little bit different rather than Tristan maybe could fall into a little bit more forgettable of a, like a modern sci-fi movie. But I like both, like I like both pitches enough. Like neither of them blew me away. Um, so I, I'm pretty split. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of in the same spot where like none of them really blew me away. Um, 
and I was looking for Tristan's to have something, you know, interesting and different. And I think he might have sold me at the very end with this whole thing of the choice of like, if they had kept it to themselves, but then they all decided that they wanted to live forever. So they spread it and they told people and they told people and that was their ultimate undoing. And I thought that was kind of an interesting yeah. idea. And uh, so that's where my vote goes is with Tristan's. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was I, I could have gone either way. I think yeah. Johnny would have That's sold me. That's a tough me. rule when you don't match it up together. Yeah, I think Johnny would have sold me more if he had kept uh, Taika Waititi as Willy Wonka and his director. I think that could have been. Yeah, I think you know in going that, more that, that style and tone, I think it would have maybe sold me more. But yeah, because the problem yeah, is like what I, what like John, I I really do do like you still you don't get a clear you know, this is a style that he's going to put into this movie. Yeah. Like, he could still make a good movie, but it's just hard to pitch, I feel like. Yeah. It was a tough one because that one, normally I'll figure out my director like while I figure out what I'm going to do with it. And I wrote my pitch, and I only wrote a few sentences, but I knew generally the idea of my film. And then I was like, who could make this come to life? And in my head, I pictured Favreau because I think his comedy kind of worked with what I was going for with the characters, but... It, it was a tough one to pick the director for, and that might have been my downfall with it. So yeah. I'll take it. That was a harder one to fight. Tristan's first movie I thought legitimately sounded bad, so I was very passionate. That one I was like, I would definitely go see Tristan, so it was a little harder to actually <laughs> yeah. fight against. I kind of knocked what I could, but it yeah, like, good. Like so John, I, I'm not mad about losing that one. Like Johnny's whole argument of Frank Darabont having, having, having not done anything in 10 years, I'm like, well, that's like the rule. Like if he it's had done rule. anything interesting yeah, in the last 10 years, true. then he wouldn't right. qualify. So. Yeah. I was I, at I the point where if, I was at the point where if Johnny brought well, it up I again, I would have. But yeah, so we have some uh, live comments. Spinner fifty eight uh, said that she likes Tristan or she liked Tristan's better until it turned into The Walking Dead, and she wasn't a fan of that. And then uh, Paul liked that fit with Cocoon, but I would have seen Tristan's movie. Paul said uh, having uh, the cocoons in the Chocolate River makes more sense than The Walking Dead. And then uh, uh, yeah, sounds like they all like mine. And then Paul220 said uh, Johnny was robbed. And then one thing I'd focus on, too, based on the live comments, is yeah. trying not to talk over each other as much, but it's hard to do when you're fighting each other out. Yeah, I. It, it's tough because we both have points. To say. It, it's hard because when someone says something and it makes you think of something immediately, you yeah. want to say it. And if, they, and if you don't say it immediately, you might forget it. But yeah, then when you try to talk, we're just both immediate. talking at the same time. And Tristan and I both do it. Exhibit it, yeah. It, it, it depends on who's facing each other because some some of us are, I think, better at not talking, but then we do forget points. Yeah. So, right, that's that's the problem. All right, so I'm picking what we're doing next, and it's a tough decision on this. This is where I wish we had that wheel. I can pull it up for you, Tristan. Spin the wheel. <laughs> I tell. Me I hope fate. it lands on something we've already done. We'll yeah, do it again, and I'll win. <laughs> For those on the stream, I do have a wheel that I was trying to use today, but I couldn't get it to work right without revealing my my notes. We're on Harry and the Harry, Harry and the Hendersons from 1987. All right, Harry and All the right. Hendersons was Tristan's pick, so me and Bobby will be judging this one together. I, I get to pick, right? So Tristan yeah. picked this. Um. Tristan, did I? I started last time. I'll start. I'll or I'll go first again. All right. 
So Harry and the Hendersons uh, came out in 1987. It got a 43% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it won the Oscar for Best Makeup, which, uh, sure, because that movie was not great, so it won that. That's that's what qualified it for this episode, was its Best Makeup Award. So You're while, welcome. While returning from a trip in the woods, George Henderson, played by John Lithgow, and his family run into something with their car that turns out to be a Sasquatch. <laughs> Thinking the creature is dead, they take him home, but Harry, played by Kevin Peter Hall, soon awakens. Despite their initial fears, Harry is a kind and sensitive being, and the Hendersons become very fond of him. However, it is difficult to keep him a secret, and soon they begin to fear for Harry's safety. Alright, so, I am centering Harry and the Hendersons um, around a holiday. And... I am making my movie an animated movie, and my directors are Sergio Pablos and Carlos Martinez Lopez, who did a great little animated film called Klaus, um, which Joe recommended to me and I thought was fantastic, and the animation is great. But my only problem with Klaus was I thought the animation was great, but most of the movie was very dark, and you didn't really get to see that element with the bright colors and all these things, so the holiday that I am centering my movie around to incorporate some of that into their animation style is Dia de los Muertos, a.k.a. Day of the Dead, because my movie will be called Harry and the Herreras, um, and it will take place in Mexico. Um, my Miguel, which is the father of my family, is uh, voiced by Michael Pena. My Annabelle, the mother, is going to be voiced by Michelle Rodriguez. Uh, Mateo, the son, is going to be played by uh, Gunnar Sizemore, who did voices in The Book of Life and Kung Fu Panda, and my Isabella, which is the daughter. Funny enough, I named the character before I found my actress, but Isabella Mersad, who is in Dora and the Lost City of Gold, um, is going to be, be the voice of the daughter. And I have a hunter in the film, um, Hunting for Harry, and that's going to be played by uh, Benicio Del Toro. So the Herreras are a family living in Mexico that do not get along very well. The daughter and son are both very unique, and the parents don't really understand them. The family seems to be drifting apart. The mother is overly serious, and the father is a bit of a joke. Um, he tries to turn everything into a joking situation, and the rest of the family doesn't take him very seriously. That is when Miguel, the father, decides the best way to bond with his family after the loss of their grandmother, uh, which seems to be uh, hard for the family, uh, is to travel to the biggest uh, Dea de los Muertos celebration in all of Mexico so they can honor her having loving memories of his family road trips when he was a child with his mother uh, and father. On the way to Mexico City, the family station wagon hit something on the road. Miguel gets out of the car thinking he has hit any old animal, but sees, that, but sees something lying in the road that makes him shout in horror. A chupacabra is lying in the middle of the road, appearing to be dead. Um, realizing that the what the creature is and how much it could be worth, Miguel straps it to the top of their van. Miguel... More excited than he has been uh, throughout the movie, turns up the radio, singing along to Feliz Navidad. The chupacabra, though, is not dead. He pops up between the two kids in the back, causing a commotion in the car. It turns, it does turn out, however, that the creature is not dangerous. He is very friendly. Having a tongue hanging out of the side of his mouth, he licks the family whenever he can. Miguel wants to get rid of it, saying they are supposed to be uh, supposed to bring bad luck, but the family wants to adopt their new pet, their new friend. And Miguel reluctantly agrees. The family agrees to name the Chupacabra Harry. When the family drives off, a man dressed like a hunter walks out of the woods. He sniffs the ground and squints his eyes. You've been here. 
I'll find you. The rest of the film plays out as the family bonding in their adventure while getting chased down by the hunter. Uh, when they finally reach the Day of the Dead celebration, it is revealed that the Chupacabra is a lost soul of an extinct species. Uh, without this soul returning to the dead, there will be uh, terrific or there will be terrifying ramifications upon the living. The hunter is actually trying to protect the world by bringing the lost soul back amongst the dead where it belongs. The family shares a tearful goodbye with Harry before he goes willingly back to the dead, uh, having overheard and understanding the hunter's speech to them about saving humanity and caring about his new family. He wants to do everything he can to save them. So that is my uh, reboot of Harry and the Hendersons, which is a terrible movie, but I made it good. I don't know what's happening in Whoa. the background. Yeah, I don't know what that noise is. Um, Tell me but all. I, yeah, all I have to say I is the uh, Chupacabra. Yeah, yeah as you, you said a hunter squints his eyes. I just pictured Jumanji with uh, uh, Jonathan Hyde because that's like all right. he does in that movie. It's going to be <laughs> just like, squint his eyes. I, I, I wanted to play on that. That's what I was kind of envisioning yeah. when, I, when I chose yeah. that character. And honestly, what. Um, what motivated me to make this an animated film, obviously Klaus is a great movie, but the two best movies of 2021 so far have been Ryan the Last Dragon, which I watched last night, and I was blown away by it, and Mitchell's versus the Machines, which is the best movie to come out this year, and it's literally, it's if I made a skip to 2031 and I make a, a decade list, it's probably in my top 20 because I can't see anything passing. I love the shit out of it. Mitchell's uh, versus the machine. So I highly recommend that. All right. And uh, Tristan, what is your pitch for Harry and the Hendersons? Uh, I went with the rule that Johnny just used recently and that it's set in the Willy Wonka uh, chocolate factory. Uh, for my director, I did Rob Letterman, who did the Goosebumps movies and did Detective Pikachu. I thought those are both really good kids' movies that were able to get into like an established universe and pay tribute to it without feeling like it's just a bunch of like fan service and references and stuff like that. Uh, and my cast here for for my uh, Willy Wonka, who has a smaller role, but he's definitely present throughout uh, some of the, the plot. He just is not as prominent as he is in like the original Willy Wonka or something. And that's played by Mark Hamill. Uh, the older brother of the Hendersons is played by Noah Jupe, just coming hot off A Quiet Place too, and I think he'd be a good kind of like older brother uh, character here. And the dad of the older brother here is Ryan Reynolds. The mom is Allison Bree. And Harry, the younger brother who is present physically in the movie, but then is like a kind of a in a costume slash doing the voice throughout a lot of most of it, is uh, played by Christian Convery. He was the lead in the Netflix uh, show Sweet Tooth that just came out a few weeks ago. It was kind of a huge critical hit. So if you haven't seen Sweet Tooth on Netflix, I definitely recommend it. But he's kind of like a young up-and-coming actor, and I think that show could probably launch him into something interesting. So my uh, plot here is that when on a tour of Willy Wonka's factory, the Hendersons are pulled into an unexpected adventure when their youngest son, Harry, eats an odd, an odd piece of chocolate that he finds in the testing room. He, he goes from a small child into an enormous chocolate Bigfoot. So in order to reverse the process of turning into this big chocolate Bigfoot, Wonka must lead Harry and the Hendersons on a journey through the bowels of the abandoned factory rooms of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory to go find the original machine where he made this old chocolate. Because he says we can't make the antidote chocolate without going back to the source of the original chocolate. So they go through this kind of adventure 
really going through these old bottles of Willy Wonka chocolate factory or getting sort of like the if you ever played Portal 2 like the way in Portal 2 you go through like the old Absurgo factory and like oh it was built on top of this and you see like the old logos and that kind of stuff that would be my idea like you're going back and you're seeing like oh here was some of the original uh, machines the original stuff from when Wonka first opened his factory back in the day so you get this kind of family bonding experience where each of the members of the family has to sort of like learn to rely on the other person in certain situations like they come in and uh, they're just kind of like you know the dad's Brian Reynolds is kind of a dork he's trying to get along with the kids but he's not quite connecting with them so they have to learn how to connect with their dad and be honest with, the, with their dad and all while getting this increasingly uh, chocolatey Bigfoot throughout the factory of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory you get a little bit of like I said, you see some of the history of the of the factory without getting too much into like the actual history, like giving away too much. And I think that director that I chose is good at balancing that. Like he did in Detective Pikachu, he was able to throw us into that world and give us characters and stuff we knew without making it feel like it was a bunch of cameos and references and stuff we knew. <laughs> you know, so I think he'd be able to do that pretty well. And I think my cast is pretty fun. I think Mark Hamill's Willy Wonka would be a fun presence and a different, much different performance than we've gotten out of. Willy Wonka in the past, so I think that would be interesting. And that's my pitch for Harry and Henderson set within the Chocolate Factory of Willy Wonka. Alright. Uh, Bobby, do you it's got a any... tough role. Bobby, do you got any questions for either of them? Not really. Uh, I mean, I, I, I understand where they're both going with it, for sure. Um, but, I, I mean, I need to hear things as, I, as they fight, but there's nothing yeah. that I can really point to right now. Alright, so yeah, I'll put five minutes on the clock and you two can fight it out starting now so i'll say that uh what i like about mine is that it feels very much in tone with the original without like being like the terrible kind of campy b movie stuff for the original it feels like the family fun kind of adventure movie that i'm going for and i think what yours misses like i understand you had some motivation for some reason to make it an animated movie but i think that kind of misses so much of the potential to make a cool practical costume out of this and like i think if you the only memorable thing about the original movie is that costume so i think if you want to remake it it's a it's a good moment to effects have come so far to do a cool visual costume not just an animated bigfoot like that's not or not an animated creature like i think you want it to be a practical creature you want it to be something that's more interesting to look at and i think mine you, you lean into that with the Willy Wonka. That was what made the original Willy Wonka movie so fascinating was that so much of it was practical and like so it wasn't just like a bunch of CGI. Like like I, just, I always imagine that scene where they're going along in the on that cart, you know, and uh, the cream the is falling out and that kind oh. of stuff. And that whole, that whole practical effect is so impressive. And I think that landscape and that world lends itself to some practical effects and some, some zaniness. So I just really think my, my tone meshes well with Willy Wonka. I, I disagree with you on a couple aspects of your movie, which I, I think it's commendable. I, I think it's a tough rule. I really like my cocoon pitch. I think you've done a decent job with yours. But my problem is, first of all, um, Gene Wilder should have won the Oscar that year for how good he was as Willy Wonka. I, I think that's the reason I would say, yes, the practical effects are fine in that movie. But the reason that that movie stands out is because of his performance and while I love Mark Hamill, um, he's never shown that he can do anything up to that level um, 
as far as live action acting goes. I mean, he's in small roles and he's been Luke, like whatever. He's an okay character in that, but he got overshadowed by almost every other actor's performances in the Star Wars movies. Um, and I like Mark Hamill a lot. He's got a good personality, but I don't see that necessarily working. And while you say that's a smaller role in your movie, he seems to be sticking with the family for the most part while you go see the bowels. Your movie seems a lot like you took elements of Jurassic World 2, which sucked, but the you know it's like, oh, we're going to go see the old Jeep. Like, we're going to go see this room where they made the gobstoppers that they don't make anymore and stuff like that. Like, that's fine. Like, I guess if you like nostalgia a lot, like that's going to do something for you. But I think I made like a legitimately good movie from great directors who I'd love to see their next work. I love their animation style. And I think you could do something unique with this story. You know, you take the elements of the family and everything from the original, you change the creature to something else. That's a fantastical creature. And I think that works better than just like their son turning into Bigfoot, which makes no sense because if you learned anything from Willy Wonka, all of the things that the children ate or got sucked into or whatever with the Chocolate River was stuff that was never released to the public. Willy Wonka is very diligent in terms of what actually comes out and stuff. I think that is important to the element yeah, of the I character. I don't, I don't see why, well. but I don't see why this family would have access to I mentioned candy in my that pitch turns that into Bigfoot. During the tour, they go to like a testing room where Willy Wonka tests the candy, whether it's good or bad, and he picks up this piece of chocolate on the ground of the testing room and eats it, and he wasn't supposed okay. to. Oh, okay. I missed that a little bit. But my point stands of, here's my thing. Does Willy Wonka show an ounce of remorse in the original movie towards any of these kids that ate shit that he told them not to? No. I don't believe that Willy Wonka, as a character, if you're basing it on his chocolate factory and you're basing it on the legendary performance and I think what is such a great character is... He tells you what to do. If you don't listen to him, he doesn't care. You're cut. If that kid ate that chocolate, that family is kicked out of that factory in a second. He's not going to go help them search for the antidote for this kid. He's going to be like, your kid fucked up. Sorry, you're out. We'll fix him and we'll send him back to you. But like, maybe he'll die. I don't care. Like, he's not the type of character that's going to go on an adventure and be like, yeah, we have to fix this kid. Like, that doesn't make sense for the character of Willy Wonka. I think but I don't think because he's him. never done anything like that in his career. He has, like he's, he's voiced the Joker. Like that's his best actual acting performance, and it's a voice work. If you made your movie animated and you said Mark Hamill was voicing Willy Wonka, I think that's fine. And my idea I think that is that would be good. Uh, Willy Wonka's played as this kind of like grumpy guy who's dragged along to this uh, save this kid. He doesn't necessarily want to be doing it. But and I do think he had an arc in the original movie, so to just go back and have him still be like the same cruel, cold guy from the beginning of the original movie, like that wouldn't be very faithful to the character. Like he grows a bit throughout the movie and learns to care about Charlie and learns to like that he underestimated Charlie, and that's like kind of his arc through the through the first movie. So to have him be now like this older Mark Hamill presence, I don't see him being as cold and cruel, but he still has that like cold kind of uh, presence to him. Where Mark Hamill, I think, would play this kind of like grumpy old wizard type character for Willy Wonka when he's gotten but, along in age. But if you're basing this on Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and you're basing it off of his arc with Charlie, Willy Wonka is not in that factor anymore. So your movie only exists if you, th- if you throw out anything that happened with Charlie and Willy Wonka is still running his factory. Otherwise it's Charlie's factory because he gets the thing because of, Willy Wonka's arc so you can't have both of his you can't have his arc as a new character and 
uh, still have him run the factory. It doesn't make sense with with the actual character, right. uh, Willy Wonka. It's been five minutes, Bobby. Do you need more time, or do you? Uh, no, I, I think I'm I'm pretty much set. Uh, I don't know if I I don't yeah. think I changed from what we talked about. Yeah, me either. So, so do you want to give yeah, your opinion? So, yeah, you give your opinion. Yeah, I'll, I'll give mine first. I I think, I think what it comes down to is really uh, the Willy, Willy Wonka rule is tough, um, and I think both pitches that used it were good for that. Um, but Johnny's movie making it animated, I actually really did enjoy. Uh, I, I think that could really, really work, and changing the creature would work. Um, I like the Chupacabra aspect, um, and it came down to, I think Tristan's movie would be solid, and I'd probably want to see it, but Johnny's really came together in my head, and I could see um, it working and being a fun animated movie, and especially, I really did like the choice of the director of Klaus, so I'm going with Johnny. Yeah, I was, I was the same way. I like the uh, creativity of you know, changing up the mythological creativity. creature I mean, laziness of, you know, the, the of the creature. And I wasn't so much a fan of making the, you know, creature in Tristan's like a member of the family from the beginning and have it be a kid. I wasn't so much a fan of that, but so that's why I yeah. love Johnny as well. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, that's a tough rule. Bobby picked that rule. So I'm blaming him for both Tristan and I's losses on that one. But I think, I think Tristan had some good elements of his, and I liked my cocoon pitch, but that's a tough rule to win if you don't match up. If we were doing rule to rule, I would have been very interested to see who won between Tristan and I there. All right. So, Tristan, you lost again, so where are we going for the next round? Let's go with 2,000 Leagues Under the Sea. All right. That was that was Bobby's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah. Yeah. I was like two thousand. I don't have two thousand. That doesn't seem like that's a big a, enough. That's number. a very different thing. Yeah, barely breaking the surface. <laughs> <laughs> Who's uh, going first, Tristan? Uh, I'll go first on this one. All right. So, uh, like I said, this is Bobby's pick. So he's judging this round. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Well, they didn't give it, but it has eighty nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects and Art Direction, so that's what qualifies it for this episode. Uh, the plot is, in 1866, Professor Pierre M. Aranax and his assistant, Conseil, uh, stranded in San Francisco by reports of a giant sea monster attacking ships in the Pacific Ocean, are invited to join an expedition to search for the creature. During the search, they and harpooner Ned Land are thrown overboard during an attack, eventually discovering that the supposed monster is actually a submarine piloted by the brilliant but haunted Captain Nemo. All right. All right, so for my uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, my rule that I use <laughs> is one must be a Charlie Chaplin silent film. Uh, mm -hmm. And for my premise here, I have Charlie Chaplin playing uh, dual roles. He plays uh, in the novel, Pierre is sort of like the professor who narrates the story but in mine i kind of change him up to be like this working class like coal miner type person who works like the bottom level of a submarine he's like a working class joe essentially charlie chaplin's tramp character but he's like a working class submarine worker and we also have uh, captain nemo also played by charlie chaplin who's like this larger than life sea captain who uh is sort of like this privilege and, and prone to anger kind of sea captain who's piloting this uh boat a submarine out to find the creature who 
killed his lover, Paul, who I have played in some flashbacks and some scenes later in the movie by Paulette Goddard, the classic uh, Chaplin uh, actress who's in a bunch of his movies. Uh, so we get kind of like this role swap comedy where the the low-level worker guy ends up swapped with the captain of the boat, and the captain of the boat is having to do some physical comedy at the bottom, trying to figure out how to do this like working-class kind of job you know, that the, the tramp would do so well, but that this captain cannot figure out how to do it all. And meanwhile, the tramp character is up on the, the bridge of this boat trying to figure out how to be a captain of this boat because he's stuck in this crazy miscommunication of they think he's a captain and he's not, but he doesn't know how to get out of it. Like this similar Charlie Chaplin kind of comedy, I think that's something he would do really well. And uh, halfway through, or about halfway through the movie, they come along and realize that the people who... Uh, the the creature that supposedly killed the wife was not a creature at all. It was a city of Atlantis, and there is a another submarine they run into that's piloted by another uh, captain who is also played by uh, Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> he comes in as a third role, playing this third captain for the finale of the movie, and we get these three very different performances from Charlie Chaplin and Paulette Goddard is among these Atlanteans because she wasn't actually. Uh, killed, she was taken by the Atlanteans and saved. So we get kind of the reunion of the lovers here. But then we get these three very, very different Charlie Chaplin performances of the Tramp, of Captain Nemo, and then of the Captain of the Atlanteans, and eventually having to kind of like work together with their uh, their skills to get out of the sinking submarine, and kind of like they put their heads together a bit, and and then kind of part ways at the end. So we get this. Not only uh, we get like three performances out of Charlie Chaplin in this one movie, and I think it would be a really fun way to kind of up his ante, and we essentially would get like a great dictator style movie, but with no, within the limitations of being silent, which I thought would be interesting because I think so much of what makes the great dictator is that dialogue at the end. So I'd like to see how he would act these two different characters while having to be silent as well. So I think that would be a fun challenge to have him face as a director. And so that's my pitch for 20,000 Under the Sea as a Charlie Chaplin silent movie. All right. Johnny, what is your pitch for this movie? That is not the rule that I ever would have imagined with this. Um, so props to Tristan for, for coming up with something creative for a movie I never would have imagined uh, doing a Charlie Chaplin movie with. But I think if you're talking about a submarine movie, if you've seen these whatever state farm or whatever fucking commercials they are. That's like, you don't want to be like your dad. Um, one of the commercials says, uh, who else reads movies about submarines? And the guy goes, my dad, <laughs> and I'm making my movie about a submarine, a dad movie, because I feel like that fits perfectly with not only the story, but with what dad's like. And I think, you know, if you look at Hunt for October and movies like that, those are great dad films, and I want to expand on that. So my 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is played by a director that arguably is the greatest director of all time, and nowadays is a great dad movie director, Steven Spielberg. My Captain Nemo, played by another great dad movie actor, uh, Kevin Costner, and my Ned Land, uh, the lead, is played by another great dad actor uh, character and one of the greatest actors of all time, Tom Hanks. My professor, Pierre uh, Aranax, is played by Sterling K. Brown from This Is Us. Sorry. My Conceal is played by Josh Lucas. 
who was in dad movies such as J. Edgar, Ford vs. Ferrari, The Lincoln Lawyer, and Dad Show, Yellowstone. And I think a good thing about dads, if I'm basing this solely off of what my dad does, um, is he loves looking up people and being like, oh, yeah, he was in this and that. Maybe it's not as recognizable a person. I think Sterling K. Brown fits that. I think Josh Lucas fits that. Or fits that, and my novelist first mate is uh, Kirk Mason, is played by David Thewlis, who also fits that, who is in Wonder Woman, and he's obviously Lupin in the Harry Potter movies, and this is my pitch. The movie begins with a meeting of the United Nations in 1968. The leaders of the UN are discussing a recent development of submarines being formed, uh, being found sunken in the ocean and crews going missing. The American government suggests that they have someone who might be able to help. A war veteran of World War II and an expert submarine captain named Ned Land is the best and possibly only man for the job. After the UN agrees, Ned Land is is, um, contacted to put together a crew. Having done his research, Ned Land believes that there must be some type of creature sinking these submarines because any ship would be spotted on the radar. Um, And the bodies of the crew members would have been found. Believing this theory, Ned Land calls Professor Pierre Aronnex, a former marine biologist and professor at Yale. Agreeing to the mission, Pierre brings his assistant, Conceal. Pierre and Conceal arrive at the East Coast docking station where Ned Land and the rest of the crew wait. They set out their journey. The three, ma- the three main characters have a scene where they are all sitting together telling stories as an homage to the famous Indianapolis speech in Jaws. Professor Pierre Aronnex uh, tells a story of a giant squid attacking uh, diving crew he was leading uh, while explaining that there are monsters under the sea. Nothing has ever been discovered in the modern age uh, that is big enough to take down submarines. Ned and Pierre get into an argument because Ned believes in his monster theory, despite Pierre's doubts. While the two are arguing, Conceal stops them, pointing out the window and asking, what the hell is that? The ship is rammed by something huge. Conceal says it looks like a large whale or giant shark. It ends up being another submarine. Theirs is intercepted by the Nautilus, um, and the captain, Captain Nemo, uh, takes the crew, brings them in, and they're kind of revealed that this is someone who has basically futuristic technology, and he has decided because of the loss of people close to him that he has uh, created the perfect society, something that can live underwater in his creations that doesn't have to deal with war and things like that and this is the very beginning of the cold war so he is basically creating a society that will stay safe in case of nuclear warfare um and the rest of the movie kind of plays out as uh kevin costner and tom hanks having uh philosophical debates about humanity and what's best for them net uh ned land believing that you need to uh create a society that's best for the world and captain nemo believing that you can take the best of the world and making your own perfect society and forgetting anybody else and leaving them, basically leaving them to the wolves. So a lot of the movie is kind of, uh, you know, more uh, philosophical. I think that's a, that's a good dad movie thing. You get a lot of scenes of uh, two people talking and maybe taking a long drag and a cigarette and then saying something. I think those are good, uh, good elements of a movie like that. And I I think it would make the movie interesting. I'm going to keep a lot of the themes of the original that are Ned Land for forgetting about society and what, or not Ned Land, but Captain Nemo forgetting about the rest of society, making his own community and uh, wanting to kind of restart the world. And I want that as kind of the main dilemma of the film is that Ned Land is going to be sent to an island um, of all the traitors 
and then convincing Nemo slowly that, you know, the best way to make this world work is to take this technology and make a better world instead of making taking this technology and making a different world and leaving people behind. So I think those are a lot of good elements that uh, stay true to the original, stay true to the novel, and stay true to what makes a good dad movie. You kind of want some debate scenes. You kind of want some uh, character uh, influences and things like that. And it's a submarine movie. Uh, and Steven Spielberg, I think the best parts of what you can do with this movie nowadays, because it came out in 54, is make some really awesome practical effects, which I think a silent film with Charlie Chaplin would epically lack. So that is my pitch for 20,000 Leagues Out of the Sea. All right. Uh, Bobby, any questions for either of them? Uh, my only tr- question is for Tristan is I, I do just kind of want to get the idea of what yours will visually look like um, mm-hmm. to kind of to kind of get the look of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea to kind of portray that. Well, I, I would have some uh, good set design from like the 1950s. I can think of even stuff like uh, Buster Keaton was doing a lot of really interesting effects and really interesting kind of like uh, set work. So I think that you can Johnny attacking for not being able to have effects. I don't know what he, yeah, he can still have effects even though it's the fifties. But yeah, I would I would have them be like these very distinctly different rooms. Like you would have the kind of like dark and grimy of what, where the the worker class guy would be, and then you'd have like the conflict of Captain Nemo being in like this big bright white kind of it would shine really well in the black and white too. Like this white suit that would starkly contrast with like the dark grimy kind of kind of like grimy black around him and You'd also have like this big, huge open space that's like the the head of the ship where the captain would be standing. And I think you have those two very contrasting kind of sets. I think that's something that would work really well in a Kelly Chaplin movie. You just have like these very limited two set things that you can put a lot of detail into and really a lot of color work and lighting work too. Okay. And then for Johnny, it would be, um, I guess how would yours your movie kind of differentiate from the other submarine tom hanks movie uh greyhound well for one people would know what it is because i don't know what the fuck greyhound is and for two um mine movie would separate itself from that because mine would be a movie that would definitely be up for oscars because every couple years basically spielberg makes an oscar type movie with big actors and that's what mine is going for it's going to have you know performances that are going to be memorable um, unlike uh, Greyhound, and it's going to be based on a property that people at least have heard of, um, unlike uh, the Greyhound bus movie. <laughs> and um, the other thing, too, I mean, I, I think what separates mine is that Spielberg, you can hit on him for maybe some recent movies, but even like Bridge of Spy, which people kind of say like is overrated, I think is a good movie. I think dads love that movie. Um, and yes, maybe uh, it was undeserving for winning Best Supporting Actor for uh, What's His Nuts uh, over Rocky. But um, I, I think Burgess Spice is a good movie. I think you can have a lot of elements of what Spielberg has done recently in some of his films, like The Post and stuff, where it's like what's best for the world compared to what is best, like keeping you know secret or things like that. I think Spielberg's shown that he can do those, and it's going to have actual elements that are going to get people talking rather than um, being just some forgettable like submarine movie. Um, but I, I, I think I have actors that can land everything I, I pitched, and I think that I have a director that can show the visual effects that I think are important to a movie that is about 
basically a captain that has futuristic technology that wants to create his own society. And I think that is key to the story of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea that you would never get from a silent film, which Charlie Chaplin never made after the 30s. So it doesn't make any sense to say that the silent Charlie Chaplin film is coming out in the 50s because that never happened. Yeah, and just so you know, Greyhound is a move is a dad submarine movie with Tom Hanks that came out like last summer uh, on Apple TV Plus uh, because of the pandemic and all that. But yeah, so also my th- my movie would be a theatric theatrical yeah. release, so that also separates it from the Greyhound bus movie. <laughs> all right, Joe, do you have anything? Uh, no, uh, no questions. So. All right. right. Well, my that. first attack on Johnny is that you can be a dad movie without being ridiculously boring. Any movie sounds so so boring. It's not, you're like, oh, it's scenes of guys sitting around a room smoking cigarettes and talking to each other. It's like, oh wow, that sounds like a real thrill ride there, Johnny. And Spielberg is yeah. Scenes of people talking have always been boring. Stuff. Like like Doctor Strangelove. There's not any good scenes of just people talking. Maybe if you have a good writer and a good director, but Spielberg is not like Spielberg is a good director. He's the best director of all time. Mm -hmm. But he's not at this point where I'm like, I can't wait to see the next like drama that Spielberg makes. Like the post. So that was really compelling. Like that's what it's going to be. It's going to be people sitting around talking. (laughs) Yeah, but you can be a dad movie without being bad. And your movie is bad. you You can be like, oh, well, it's a dad movie. But sure, you can also you can use the rule as an excuse if you want. But your movie is still boring. And no. I would okay, so here's it. my thing. Your movie doesn't exist because you're making a 50s silent film with Charlie Chaplin, which didn't ever exist. He stopped making okay, silent films. You, you, you mentioned it does because, first of all, the book wasn't out until then. And second of all, um, even if it wasn't, like if your movie is a 30s movie, you talk about visual effects and bullshit like that. Your movie doesn't uh, exist because they're not making a fucking movie about submarines in the 30s that doesn't make any sense you can't physically do that then you can't have any actual elements of the book in the 30s it takes away the whole point of the story of the movie and the book is it's someone creating a society to get rid of everything else in the rest of the world that causes problems it's a great story about philosophy of of a person and if they have access to technology will they use it to help the world or use it to create their own new world and you know what doesn't fucking play through in silent films fucking philosophy and any element of this story that is relevant to today so you can say that my book or my movie is uh, boring, but no, I disagree. I think if you're Nimrod, sure. If you don't like movies about with good uh, writing, yeah, fine. You're an idiot, but you can say my movie's boring. That's fine. People think there will be blood is boring, and those people should all uh, be murdered. And this movie is going to be good. It's going to have a lot of great dialogue, which your movie will not have. And you cannot portray your movie cannot portray the themes. And the story of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea being a silent film. There is zero chance. Especially if it's Charlie Chaplin. is about people of these different views having to come together and and, and, and their views conflicting with each other and the contrast of those three different people and the three different views. And 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 how are you going to portray that silently? Because uh, you can still portray the... Without without speaking, show me. 
I'm not going to show you. I'm not Charlie Chaplin, Johnny. Oh, yeah. I didn't think so. Okay, look. You, you're telling me you can't portray emotions through silent film? That's ridiculous. And I mean, two minutes. Like, you obviously can't portray like the conflict of characters and two different worldviews colliding in silent film. Charlie Chaplin can do it. And I think that you he absolutely could pull it off. And Spielberg is an epic director. He's a big scale director. He does like big, huge character stuff. And yours is people like sitting movie. in rooms talking. That's not a big, huge character stuff. No, you literally it's said it's, it's going to be people sitting still... around. Maybe you get a drag of a cigarette from a guy. That's, you that's have some direction. scenes. You have some scenes like that, sure. And those are the key to making the story that the book tells, because I think it's a great book. It's 10 hours long and audible, and it's free. And if you listen to it, I, I highly recommend it. Um, it tells a great story of a man who is lost because of other elements in his life. He feels out of society and he wants to create a better world. And you have someone come in that is um, criticizing that aspect and saying, you can create a better world of what we have without creating a new one. My movie does that. My movie has the good elements. I think that makes for a compelling film. You can say it's boring, but that's just a stupid argument because you know, you can call a movie that is based mostly on dialogue uh, boring, um, but that makes you simple. That makes you someone who likes the Fast and Furious movies. Hey, um, I like instead the Fast and Furious of, movies. Exactly, Joe. And, uh, you know, that, that happens. Like, people like bad movies, and people don't like yeah, dialogue-driven thrillers. Um, and, and the thing is that... Yeah, fuck you, Joe. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> just so I can team up on that. And I, I don't know. My, my thing with it is, I think there are key elements to the story that don't fit with a silent film because you can't portray them. You can portray just disgruntled character. You can portray certain things. And a lot of it is based on physicality, but I think you miss a lot of key elements from the story of 20,000 leagues under the sea without having dialogue. I and think that's really good. You still have title cards. Like you can still have the minimal amount of title card needed to portray what the characters are. Like they're not just but not only the Charlie Chaplin like... films that stand up. Modern Times doesn't have that. You know, you're not going to watch that movie and it pauses every 15 seconds to show title cards. You know, you you watch a good Chaplin silent movie and it is a silent movie through and through. It is usually a very simplistic story um, that doesn't yeah, deal like with any actual trauma. Being conflicted but you mentioned, you, know, you mentioned, you mentioned. It's been five minutes if Bobby has his ruling. Five. If you guys have the point. I will say one last thing is Tristan yeah. mentions. I, I think I last, do. So. Tristan mentions the last uh, monologue of the Great Dictator in support of his film, but that is what his film is missing: is that last dialogue from Charlie Chaplin. Charlie, yeah, it's called his movie works if it's, saying, "Oh, you can do this, uh, Great Dictator." I'd love to see him try and do it retroactively before, like, which, don't, which hasn't come out silently. All right, Bobby said he has his ruling, so yeah. yeah. And I'm trying not to make uh, this do... two hours and forty five minutes long this time. So right. Um, I do want to hear from you first, Joe, because, you know, I'm not like a hundred, hundred percent, like, uh, you know, one direction. So, uh, yeah. So my thing, my thing is I was very tight in between them for the most part. Uh, I think, I think it depends on if the whole philosophical angle is what Tristan is going for. I think if that's the case and like including that aspect of it, then I would lead towards uh, key John, elements of the book Johnny because I think movie. that's I think that fit with his style and his rule and everything but if you know he more wanted to go of the simple straightforward kind of 
story, I kind of like the Charlie Chaplin silent film angle of Tristan's. Yeah, and and honestly, it did come down to this was my pick, and it's what type of movie I would rather see for the story, uh, what, what intrigued me more, what sounded more interesting, and what does intrigue me more about this story is the philosophical aspect. Um, so the more straightforward story that Tristan's telling doesn't quite tell the entire 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea story to me. It just tells... It, it, it's a straightforward movie, and I don't think that's what the story needs. So I'm going to go with Johnny on this one. Damn fucking right. All right. And uh, we had uh, uh, my mom and Paul have a debate in the comments about, you know, uh, my mom was, you know, throughout the thing of, like, questioning Tristan about having the special effects in this movie. And then Paul was saying, well, it's just a hypothetical movie anyway, so why couldn't the effects be from any era? And then uh, my mom was, you know, said that a silent movie in the 50s really, like, doesn't make sense. And then, you know, that was kind of it. Have you guys not seen Trip to the Moon that came out in 1902? And that had great sci-fi effects. Oh, did did that come out in the 50s? It came out 50 years before that. Oh, yeah. Weird. So you're acting like there weren't effects in the 50s and there were effects. There weren't good effects. Yeah, you watch that movie, it's people that just, like, drew things. (laughs) Yeah, big submarine movie. It would make sense. Um, okay, my uh, yeah. Also, uh, my pitch. I stopped writing at. It looks like a giant whale, a giant shark, and I made everything else up. <laughs> so I'm glad that worked out for me. All right, Tristan, you need a ringer here, otherwise, uh, John yeah. and Mitch champion. So, well, we can already tell where the judges want to go with this, so we'll just pick up better movies. movies. I mean, Let's I go with four, uh, but... Shakespeare in Love. Shakespeare in Love. It. All right, that was, I believe, Tristan's pick. So yep. uh, me and Bobby are co-judging that one again. Uh, let's see. Uh, Shakespeare in Love came out in 1998, got a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. It won seven Oscars, surprisingly, for Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Wild. Actress, Best screenplay, best art direction, best costume design, and best original score. Uh, the, the plot of the movie, a romantic comedy for the 1990s set in the 1590s. It imaginatively unfolds the witty, sexy, and timeless tale behind the creation of the greatest love story ever told. A young Shakespeare, played by Joseph Fiennes, is out of cash and ideas. He meets his ideal woman, and she inspires him to write one of his most famous plays. Tristan, who's going first? If you say I'll go first on this one. Okay. okay. I think this uh, is an obvious rule choice, and we'll see if Tristan yeah. agrees with it. I went with the rule that I think is probably the obvious one, but we'll see if Johnny pulled a, a fast one on. I said I went with the 86th Academy Award uh, nominees nope, for my, not, my picks. Not at all. Uh, so my my uh, director is Martin Scorsese. I think he uh, this tone I'm going for here is like. You get like that kind of Wolf of Wall Street, like big kind of excess of this era and this kind of lifestyle, like the big flashy kind of sets and that kind of stuff. And he also had like the love story romance that he could do in Age of Innocence. So I think it would be a nice kind of bridge of two very different Scorsese styles. I think that's when he's more interesting when he takes like these two different things and kind of puts them together. Like Raging Bull is like a crime movie, also a kind of a sports movie, also like a biopic, you know, it has a lot of different genres. And I think that's something that you could pull off in a good... Uh, Shakespeare movie 
And my Shakespeare is uh, Michael Fassbender. Henry, who plays kind of this like rich Earl that hires on Shakespeare, is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, his wife, Mary, is played by Kate Blanchett. And sort of this actress muse who later becomes Shakespeare's wife, who is uh, named Anne Hathaway, ironically, in real life. Uh, her, she's played by Sally Hawkins, who's also nominated that year for, I can't remember what it was, I think uh, one of those movies. Shape <laughs> but, of yeah. Water. I think that was a different year, but yeah. So yeah. mine is essentially uh, Fassbender plays Shakespeare as this sort of like tragically romantic like figure who's sort of distant and overflowing with like these angst and ideas, and he entices the interest of Henry, who's kind of this rich guy played by Leonardo DiCaprio, like I mentioned, uh, who wishes to hire Shakespeare to write love poems about Henry's wife Mary. So it's just sort of based on. A true story. There's a lot of theories about who Shakespeare wrote his sonnets about, and these characters, Henry and Mary, are kind of composite characters with a few different uh, theories of who these characters, who these people might have been, in history. So essentially, we're getting Shakespeare sort of writing these sonnets about uh, Mary for Henry. But if you study Shakespeare, you also know that his sexuality was something that people theorize a lot about as well. And you wonder when he wrote these sonnets, he kind of goes between pronouns and once in a while he's talking about this a man once in a while he's talking about a woman so people theorize that Shakespeare might have been also writing about a man while he wrote this so I have this element of Shakespeare stuck in the sort of love triangle between he has feelings for Henry and uh, Mary is sort of becoming enticed with Shakespeare as as this like new exciting guy coming into her life this romantic kind of poet that's writing for her and Henry is also trying to use Shakespeare and his poems to reignite relationship with Mary so you get these this kind of dynamics of this relationship I think that's something Sir says he could pull off really well I think it would be really fun to see him like have to go with like I love Age of Innocence it's one of my favorite Scorsese movies so I'd love to see him get back into that like tragic kind of romance with these really kind of like big sets that I really thought he could pull off well with Wolf of Wall Street so you get kind of the best of both the worlds with Scorsese and you get him out of that crime world genre that I think gets stuck in so much and give him a chance to do something a little bit uh, different with these characters and you sort of get like the downfall like I think Scorsese does that really well too like people who think they're in this great setting in this great situation and they kind of get too big for the britches and slowly but surely kind of like falls apart for them by the end so you get that with these relationships that kind of begin to collapse and fall apart as Shakespeare gets too confident as Mary gets too confident as uh, Henry starts to kind of figure out the truth about the relationship and that's kind of the the way it ends with that kind of all falling out similar to age of innocence where it's like left with this kind of tragic hanging moment at the end and that's my pitch for shakespeare in love as a a tragic romance by uh scorsese all right sounds great all right well there's there's one rule that can make this movie be worth why shakespeare movies are bad um the only interesting Shakespeare movies are ones that change it completely, like Lion King, um, Hamlet's bad, the, both of the Romeo and Juliet movies are bad, so you got to take an element of it, make it fun, make it exciting for people, so obviously you have to make this a Muppet movie. Um, my director is James Bowman, who has done Flight of the Concords episodes, shout out, but also most of the Muppet movies. Um, my William Shakespeare is played by someone who doesn't suck, uh, Nicholas Holt. And my Viola, who is his love interest, is played by Elisa Vicander. Um, and this is my pitch. 
a young William Shakespeare is struggling with writer's block. He is trying to write a masterpiece, but can't get his mind clear. He is comforted by his friend Kermit. Shakespeare is writing a play called Romeo and Ethel, the Pirate's Daughter. Shakespeare actors are all Muppets. Kermit is the lead. Miss Piggy plays Ethel. Other Muppets like Sam Eagle, Fozzie Bear, and Gonzo all have roles as well. While rehearsing in an empty theater, things are not going uh, well for Shakespeare. He gets flustered by Statler and Waldorf criticizing him from the balcony. Um, and Gonzo is forgetting lines. And uh, e Sam Eagle is saying that this play is not up to, to his acting standards. Um, the story of uh, plays out as Shakespeare falling in love with a woman above his class. She is uh, due to be married to a duke. And he is kind of uh, laughed at as a man who hangs out with Muppets um, and is uh, low class while she's high class. But they fall in love. They have kind of the Romeo and Juliet tale without the suicide, um, him climbing up the balcony and things like that and falling off. I think those elements are actually pretty funny. Um, the original movie is boring and bad, and you can take those elements and make them funny. Uh, but while having this relationship inspires him to write his masterpiece, uh, the masterpiece of his career, uh, Romeo and Juliet, um, in which in the end you see classic scenes from Romeo and Juliet played out by Muppets, and at the end of the film, everyone applauds, give a standing ovation of the show, including Statler and Waldorf applauding as the play ends. Cut to credits. All right. Uh, Bobby, any questions for either of them? I mean, I don't think we have, I don't think I have particular questions. I know we're on a similar page of where we stand right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess it's up to you on what you want to do from here. But yeah, yeah, I definitely think they, you know, give them five minutes on the clock to fight it out. Yep. All right. So yeah, so I think I think Shakespeare is a significant historical figure who's worthy of an actual biopic that tells his actual story, not some like Muppet parody movie of him. I think I we need to get an actual good biopic out of Shakespeare, whether or not you like his plays or not, doesn't matter, Johnny. He's still a significant and important figure in history, and I think that's a story worth exploring. And I think, especially you get into this, like his sexuality and his lifestyle and that kind of stuff. That's something that'd be fascinating. Like what was the uh, that's something that wasn't exactly talked about back then, not something that was as socially significant as it is now. It was treated much differently. So I would love to see how like LGBTQ relationships were, were handled back at that time in history and how he felt about his sexuality himself. And I think that would be fascinating. I think uh, Scorsese can do great biopics about people. Like you tell me you're going to give me a Jordan Belfort biopic, I say I don't care. Some random Wall Street guy, why would I want to watch that? And then Scorsese makes it into like this really enthralling high energy kind of masterpiece and i think you can do that with shakespeare you're just like oh this boring playwright guy from hundreds of years ago why do i care about shakespeare and then it says you can turn it into a really stylish really fun really high energy kind of adventure of a biopic and i think that would be something that i would love to see him do adding in with that tragic kind of element of romance that i think he did so well uh in, in previous movies so i just would, i think this is a really interesting direction for scorsese we so much have scorsese come up and people just make like another mob movie another crime movie so i wanted to go into his filmography a bit and say okay he did age of innocence let's do something like that something a little bit different for scorsese so that's what i wanted to do with mine mine sounds like an actual good shakespeare biopic and yours sounds like i don't know a funny youtube video or something 
No. Your movie sounds like shit, um, and it would be boring, and no one would care about it. You criticized my Steven Spielberg movie for being boring, and then literally put me to sleep with your pitch. Your movie sounds bad. I don't want to see Martin Scorsese waste the last years of his career making that movie, which sounds terrible. The only way you can make Shakespeare in you Love, which is a bad movie. You've said no evidence of why. Keep talking. Okay, well, here's why it's bad. Okay? Age of Innocence is not good, and it's one of uh, Scorsese's weakest films. There's a reason that anytime anyone makes a Scorsese film on this show, they stray to the strong points of his career, and you did not do that. Um, the other reason your movie is bad is because no one gives a shit about the story of Romeo and Juliet. That shit came out in the 1500s. Yeah, no no one cares. It's stupid. The only about Romeo and Juliet. Keep talking. Okay, Why whatever. is your keep movie talking. directly about Romeo and Juliet then? My movie is directly about Romeo and Juliet, and it's about your movie's about like the making of Romeo and Juliet. It's much attributes to make Romeo and yeah, Juliet. Yeah, with with Muppets, and if you like Muppets, you'll like it. I I would like my scenes of uh, Waldorf and and Statler uh, criticizing his movie and being in the balcony. I think that sounds extremely fun. I think that sounds like something that people would like to see. I like my director uh, as far as a fit more than you. Martin Scorsese does not have many years left, and I don't want to see him waste. Sorry, multiple years of his uh, last few years of his life making Shakespeare in Love, which is a garbage movie, which anyone who Two likes minutes. it is a stupid person, um, and making a serious version of that, that sounds bad. Um, the only thing I think that is maybe um, like relevant from the original one is that it is more of a comedy than it is a serious story. I'm going to play into the only strong aspect of that film, which is a comedy. I would love the scenes uh, that I created in this, which is the Muppets recreating classic uh, Romeo and Juliet scenes, because I think that not only kind of pulls fun at something that is out of date, but maybe, uh, you know, teaches kids uh, elements from the original story in a fun way that, you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio piece of shit movie where they have guns and shit is, is, is bad and no one should ever watch it. Um, the other aspect of my movie that I really like is that I think my, my actors are more fun than yours. I think Nicholas Holt has shown in like the favorite and the shows that he's done is, uh, he can actually be a super fun actor and he would be a great young Shakespeare and same with Felicia Vikander. I think that as far as the love interest would be, uh, great in that. And, and I, I, I just think overall, the only way to make Shakespeare in love, uh, which only won in the Oscars because it had a lot of money behind its uh, basically pandering to Oscar voters. Um, it, it only won Oscars because of that, and it's not a good movie outside of that. So if you make this movie, but you make it a, uh, a Muppet movie, which would have a lot of fun aspects of Kermit and Miss Piggy recreating scenes from Romeo and Juliet, would be fun. Most people know what those are. It would be great. There is absolutely no facts behind the fact that uh, you say in your biopic that is supposed to be this great, like William Shakespeare biopic. There's absolutely zero research into the fact that William Shakespeare was gay. There's That's not one, That's not one evidence that he married wrong. different women. He had multiple children. 
The only and reason that exists, think... it's basically a conspiracy theory that you are trying to turn into real life fact. About. He's just telling Yeah, Johnny's actually not, about. out of everything, no, Johnny is not can, fully wrong. No, on you, can, you Not can, fully you right can, on that one. No, if you look it up, there's absolutely no fact. There is a couple people. It's basically like. Johnny can stop talking like someone actually There's not. I researched this. If you, you can literally read if on you, Shakespeare's Wikipedia page. Yeah, on his Wikipedia page. I have this very serious thing on Wikipedia that tells me I'm yeah, right. Yeah, you're acting yeah, like I'm it's some conspiracy right. theory bullshit. No, it is a conspiracy theory. Page. It's in all his biography, just in everything you read about Shakespeare. No, it's not in any of it his actual is. biographies that have been written I know Johnny's probably an expert in Shakespeare. I'm sure he's read so many Shakespeare biographies. I know he knows it very well, but you can tell he Look, doesn't. Because if he did, he would know. Yeah, because then I would be looking up Wikipedia and saying that's fact. Yeah, okay. All right. So that's not a thing. So don't throw that in there because that's more harmful than good. It's absolutely true. And and, anyway, you know, know, yeah, no, it's not. Um, Anyway, I'll I'll just go and actually. Outside that. All right. I want to hear what Tristan's defense of. Johnny didn't bring up any evidence. So I'm just going to bring up some actual evidence in my book. And I'll say. He t- Johnny's talking like Age of Innocence is so bad, but it's not. It was a great movie, and I think it showed that he can pull off these dramatic relationships pretty well. And you're acting like there's going to be some hyper-serious, like, really, really intense drama, and I don't think that's true. I think Scorsese does uh, comedy within his dramas really, really well. You wouldn't think something like even Taxi Driver has humor in it, you know, and you know, Wolf of Wall Street is practically a comedy. Like, Scorsese can manage comedy well, and I think you might think Shakespeare is not a character, not a character worth exploring, but I promise you he that, like he is, you wouldn't have to know anything about he his place. To, you wouldn't have to know anything about his place to like this movie. Like I mentioned, I know nothing about Wall Street. I know yes, nothing about Jordan Belfort, but I watched Wolf of Wall Street. And it was awesome because just as he gets you into that character and into that world, and I think he could do. But that how? Well. Okay, but how do you? If you've ever seen Shakespeare in Love, you can't ever set compare. Shakespeare in Love and making that a Scorsese film with Wolf of Wall Street. There's right. not one bit of comparison. The other thing is this. Here, here's my thing. Kind of you, can, world. you can quote Wikipedia and you can quote these fake websites that anybody can find mm-hmm. fake articles to and say that these are real. This is from www.shakespeare.org.uk, which .org, that makes it more of a legitimate website. Here's what they quote. Did Shakespeare have relations or loving relations with a male person? Was he, as we say, gay? Well, he certainly wasn't gay in the complete sense of the word throughout his life because he marries early, marries young, and he has three children. So to that extent, he was heterosexual. So right. you are adding in in this element that you're trying to sell me on this bio. Right. I'm I'm done on yeah. I'm yeah. done on this argument. This yeah, it's because, fine, but I'm just no, proving but, to you that he's wrong. Uh, Johnny, you have not done. I've actually read a lot about Shakespeare stuff like shit. this. That's fine. No, so uh, yeah, out of this argument, I think Tristan has won this part of it. So you can avoid it for now. Okay, avoid research. That's fine. <laughs> and I think that. Are, are we going to keep this going? Or you... mean anything. How oh, are, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's been like 10 minutes. So. It's definitely right. bad. Right. Fucking end it. My movie would, anyone okay. would see, Tristan's movie is a waste of uh, fucking Scorsese's life. Scorsese makes great movies out of premises you wouldn't think would be great. And I think he could turn Shakespeare into a really enthralling, really high energy thing, like just like a different Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. All right, well. I think that is all for the arguments. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. So this is us together. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you want to 
Do you want to give your thoughts first and I'll give my thoughts or? Yeah, we'll do that. Uh, You can make the final call unless you like differ really strongly from me. Um, Honestly, I think it comes down to the fact that like Shakespeare in Love, I did, I like it more than Johnny, but I think it's fairly boring. Um, And I think Johnny's definitely made it more interesting to me with the whole Muppet aspect. And Tristan sounded more like the original. I do like Scorsese and I think he can put a good movie together, but honestly, this story in Muppet form sounds way more entertaining than any drama form that it can be. Um, So that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. So basically uh, where I was at is if Tristan had his pitch and it was like based on like William Shakespeare's journals and it was like a very true to accurate story, then I think I would be with Tristan. But, you know, I was like looking things up during the pitches when they were fighting it out and pretty much like everything speculate speculated and it's conjecture and it's all just kind of you know assumed so i feel like it would still be a fictionalized version and basically i think if it were me and i had this rule the 86 academy awards i would stay away from this movie because i feel like an oscar Beatty type movie pairing it with an oscar oscar rule again i feel like it's a lot of more of the same so i felt like i just didn't know what new it was necessarily like, oh, this is this big change to this Oscar-winning movie that would bring in people. Oh, putting a great director and a great cast. And but totally also my story. my yeah, further yeah. point of I just, like, the whole dramatic aspect with, like, The Wolf of Wall Street has those comedic aspects, and a lot of it, what's great about it is Leonardo DiCaprio's performance as this, like, kind of comedic person, and I just don't see... Michael Fassbender as William Shakespeare in, you know, that similar type of thing. So I would rather see Johnny's Muppets Shakespeare in Love. And so Johnny... Yeah, and unfortunately, didn't have to do it, didn't want to do it, but Johnny is going to remain the champion, but uh, I guess we got to still fight it out to... um, Is there any repeater rules? You know, we still doing that with the championship matches? Of course we are. Yeah, so I guess... I'm going to win the next two. We'll see about that. I mean, you probably will. Yeah. Considering you're better than the you. Muppet movie the win over an actual Shakespeare movie. Yeah, an actual a decent Shakespeare Muppet movie, movie compared to Let's some of the Let's go with Cool Hand Luke from 1967. All right, Cool Hand Luke. Can't wait for this Muppet movie. <laughs> uh, cool Hand Luke was my pick, so I will be judging this round. And Cool Hand Luke came out in 1967, got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, and won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, When petty criminal Luke Jackson, played by Paul Newman, is sentenced to two years in a Florida prison farm, he doesn't play by the rules of either the sadistic warden or the yard's resident heavy uh, drag line, who ends up admiring the new guy's unbreakable will. Luke's bravado, even in the face of a few... ...the box... To his fellow convicts and a thorn in the side of his prison officers. Who goes first? I'll go, I'll go first on this one. All right. Tristan, who's going first? Cool. I gotta grab a drink and pee. Well, Johnny unironically guessed my rule. You see, just minds him up at movie. <laughs> uh, my director, of course, had a James Bobbin. Who else do you use? Uh, and mine's essentially like a fun parody comedy of these prison movies like Shawshank Redemption like Great Escape so you'd have moments where the 
the Muppets are like recreating famous lines or famous shots or famous scenes from these movies. And uh, my leading guy, of course, we have Kermit the Frog. He is a new prisoner who's come into the prison and is sort of like entering into this uh, comical prison and meeting all these different Muppets who are around him and his cellmates and stuff like that. Uh, Fuzzy Bear plays kind of a Red Cell character who just kind of knows everybody and has all these connections and things like that. I think that would be a fun uh, thing for for Fuzzy Bear. Uh, And then Gonzo, he's sort of this, he's like trying to do all these performances for the prisoners. Like he's the one who's always trying to entertain them and always trying to be like the center of attention. And he's always getting himself in trouble because he's messing around and giving doing performances and getting yelled at. I think that would be a fun uh, role for him. And the evil warden is played by Miss Piggy. I think that would be really fun to have her as like this big over-the-top villain uh, warden in one of these kind of movies. And Muppet movies are nothing without their uh, kind of like celebrity lead cameo characters, you know. So uh, my narrator throughout the movie is Morgan Freeman. And they kind of like not really knows that he's doing it because he's like a the narrator guy that's for every prison movie even though he's only done like the one but it would be kind of like a, a parody of like how he does all these uh narrations for these movies uh and, and kermit's inmate who gives kind of like this meandering speech about prison life and how hard it is when he gets there the first night is played by matthew mcconaughey and miss piggy's kind of muscle like the big uh the prison guy who's sort of like the sellout to the to the uh, warden who's her muscle on the floor is played by John Cena. I think it would be really fun to see John Cena like playing himself hyper seriously around all these Muppet characters. That would be something that I think would be pretty fun. And you just get like this kind of uh, adventure, kind of fun story where Kermit is going around the prison trying to meet all these characters and kind of one by one get the characters to like join his side and see like that this warden is someone they can defeat like it's just sort of like him building up a team of Muppets throughout the course of this movie and he's got the help of Matthew McConaughey as his as, uh, inmate who's sort of helping and spread it around and he builds up this team like I said uh, Fozzie Bear plays like this red cell character who has all the connections and knows all the ins and outs of the prison so he's able to get Kermit around in these back doors and these back kind of things and we tribute like the great escape where he's kind of having to crawl around and he tribute like even Shawshank Redemption that like maybe he'd have like a secret uh a secret tunnel in there and I had a uh, reference in here where he has a Rita Hayworth style poster but it's like a black and white Miss Piggy so it's like a tribute to the Shawshank Redemption with that, while having it within the world of the Muppets so mine just is like this fun uh, Kermit building up this team of Muppets and they kind of like overthrow the warden and they kind of like uh, take the prison and become like it's it's not it's just kind of like a fun parody of these prison movies I think it would be fun to see the Muppets go through those fun arcs and tribute those scenes and I think it would just be a really exciting reason of a Muppet movie alright Johnny what is your pitch for Cool Hand Luke alright so here's my thing when you do a classic movie Cool Hand Luke is a great film um, not all elements hold up like the prisoners doing their work and looking at the woman who is washing her car that doesn't necessarily hold up in 2021 Um, So I think the best way to make this movie relevant is keep a lot of the same aspects, but set it in a different kind of world and update um, what you can kind of do with uh, how it looks. So I am using the rule of directed and casted with the 86 Academy Awards. My movie is set in 3121 on a Mars 
Prison Camp. My director, who has done great space films, is Alfonso Coron. Uh, my Luke is played by Bradley Cooper. My drag line is played by Chiwetel Ejiofor. The captain of the prison camp is Kate Blanchett. And Luke's fiance, who he has flashbacks to throughout the film, is played by Lupita Nyong'o. Um, and this is my pitch. The film begins with a man in handcuffs on a spaceship heading to Mars with a group of prisoners. Luke, played by Bradley Cooper, is heading for a Mars prison camp for crimes he committed on Earth. The camp, con- the camp consists of prisoners mining for and digging up precious materials found on Mars. Luke is rebellious, trying to plan an escape. He gets into a scuffle with Dragline, one of the other inmates, in, uh, in order to stage a diversion. So he can steal a security card from one of the guards. He attempts his escape uh, as the prisoners arrive back at their dormitory. He runs free of the robotic robotic guards, uh, uh, ushering them back to their quarter. Ushering them back to their quarters, gets uh, on a kind of a space bike type of uh, special effects driven uh, element to the film. The captain yells it to him. Uh, the captain again played by Kate Blanchett she yells to him as the prison bike powers up and is very loud you are making a grave mistake you can't go far Luke responds yelling over the noise from the bike well captain what we've got here is a failure to communicate he takes off heading off uh, away from the camp however he is quickly chased down by the guards and placed in the hot box a room that barely supplies enough oxygen so the person or so the prisoner feels a constant state of near suffocation. Uh, the other prisoners who once saw Luke as a leader, uh, someone who provided hope, start uh, to disregard, disregard him because the, the night in the hot box makes him uh, kind of broken. He starts following all of the uh, captain and the, and the guard's orders. Turns out Luke was planning an escape, a final escape. One day, uh, one back to Earth. When he gets a moment uh, alone with Dragline while mining, he explains that he has the schedule down of when the prisoners are delivered. He plans on stowing away on the ship heading back to Earth. Dragline agrees to to try and help. During the escape attempt, Dragline is killed, but Luke manages to hide away and sneaks onto the ship. The ship takes off. Luke, looking at the window at his old camp, he turns around, but he sees the captain standing and looking at him. She congratulates him on his plan and for being responsible for Dragline's death. Please, just let me go home, Luke pleads to her. I believe what we have here is a failure to communicate, says the captain, and then she shoots Luke in the chest, killing him. He will never return to his fiance back on Earth. So that is my movie. I kept it very similar to the original plot, but like I criticized Tristan for, for some of his movies, if you're doing a classic film, I think you can basically tell the story over again, but updating the elements, making it something new. I wanted to update it, uh, set it with some sci-fi aspects, make it set uh, in the future. Alfonso Corona is a great director for that. Um, and I think you could make this movie telling it was a very similar story. You're going to have aspects like the original one of him questioning God um, and telling God, you know, challenging God while a uh, space storm affects Mars and then the next day getting a letter that his mom was uh, uh, is now deceased. I think those elements are very important to the story of Cool Hand Luke. I don't think the elements and the themes of Cool Hand Luke play out in a fun 
Muppet movie, I think you have to make it a very serious film. And I think taking a lot of key aspects, but making it more relevant to nowadays and updating it to a futuristic movie um, in different setting, make that movie more interesting. And you take out some of the troubling aspects of the original film. So that's my movie. All right. Uh, Bobby, do you have any questions for either of them? Uh, not particularly. I, I think I I have an idea of both movies, so I'm, All right. I'm good. And uh, my question is for Tristan. Uh, how how does your movie end? Like, what's the ending of your? Uh, essentially, like they the, the prisoners sort of take control of this prison and win the warden kind of word of their side at the end, and then the, the ending is sort of like this big uh, sort of dance number. The Muppets subdue it. They're kind of like musical moments in the musical numbers so i would have like all the muppets kind of come together at the end and that's kind of the big ending it's like this big dance number in the halls of the prison with the muppets all together all right uh yeah that's so all right that's the only question i had i'll put five minutes on the clock and let you guys battle it out i might stop it beforehand but i'll say when you're remaking a classic you don't turn it into like a big budget stocky sci-fi like franchise movie <laughs> it's just oh, like I mean, my cocoon lost, didn't it? So uh, like, I don't think it did. It did not. It was the only and, one. You and wanted. you spent the whole time arguing about like how I how I changed the original too much by making the genre slightly different, and you totally changed the genre. You changed it entirely. Like it's not even the same genre at all. So but I think you changed kept way all too much. of the themes, but kept all of the themes in the original. All I did was update the setting, update the director, make it more relevant to today's society, and tell a classic story. Just like um, how you defend Shakespeare, you can make classic movies uh, very similar nowadays, but make them updated and make them more relevant, and that is exactly what I did. Look, I mean, mine. If you're gonna remake a classic, you don't. You, I think the best way to do it, especially something is this classic, is complete hundred percent in Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I think it is. I think parody is the so. biggest form of flattery. I think when something's been done perfectly, the only way to continue to do it again is to like subvert that and to do it like do a parody not just of cool hand luke directly but of like the genre around it like the whole prison escape movie the whole like good guy prisoner movie i think muppets would have a fun time spoofing those genre tropes and it's a genre that's been done to death so many so. times First, whether it's on tv okay. whether it's in movies i think it's something that we've seen so many times i think it would be fun to see the muppets like hit those beats and have fun with that i don't think so i i, I think first of all the movie's called cool hand luke the main character is named Luke, and he gets his nickname from winning a card game by bluffing uh, in a poker hand. I'm going to leave that aspect in. It's the only way the characters uh, of the camp kind of recognize him as someone they should look up to. Your movie, Kermit the Frog, not named Luke, um, doesn't get that nickname, so it doesn't make any sense for the title. Second of all, the original is the whole theme of the original movie, which you kept the same in Cocoon. You did change quite a bit, but you kept this, the, the, the same theme. The theme of Kool and Luke is someone questioning God and being uh, basically punished for doing that. I leave a lot of those same elements. I think you can make a good movie with those same elements, but I think if you watch the original movie, some elements don't hold up. And I think if you update some of those themes, you make it more of a sci-fi film. Alfonso Cuarón is the perfect director to do so. You can keep a lot of the same great classic elements from the first film, but make it more interesting and more relevant to today's audiences. 
and I don't think making Cool Hand Luke, which at the end is Paul Newman getting shot in the face and bleeding out and dying, I don't think taking that movie and making it a Muppet movie really works. I think if you're going to make a Muppet movie, you can't parody a film that no one who watches the Muppets knows what the fuck you're referencing. And you're parodying a lot of films that, like, yes, if you made a Muppets movie and parodied a lot of kids' movies, that makes sense. But if you parody the Shawshank Redemption and Cool Hand Luke and the Green Mile and a lot of classic prison movies that are made for adults. Muppets are not just made for kids. It does not make sense. They are mainly made for kids. And like when you watch those movies, they're not only kids jokes. Like the parodying stuff can be for the whole audience. Like that's what the kids would go in there. But where's your scene of Kermit getting shot in the face at the end? Like, like you don't, you don't keep a lot of the, 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 basic elements of yeah, the film, it's a, it's I think. A Muppet movie. As I'm taking yeah, the premise Muppet of the movie. movie and I'm turning it into a, like a Muppet parody movie of prison movies. That's what it is. You you took maybe the worst movie you could have made a Muppet movie into a Muppet movie. I would say the only other movie you could have uh, made worse as a Muppet movie was uh, uh, The Constant Gardener. Um, but this one is an adult film. It is something that is a classic. It is a story that is classic. And I think if you take a lot of the same aspects, you make it more relevant to today's audience. I think you could make a very good movie. And I think your movie, no one would know what the hell it's referencing because any audience that's going to see a Muppet movie probably doesn't know what Cool Hand Luke is and wouldn't understand why it's even called that because you're making a Muppet movie? So it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I mean, to be perfectly, 1967 was not like that long ago. Like parents are still going to see these movies. Like families go to see these movies together. And I think you cover a broad range of stuff. Like you, you have the culture references there for the parents. And that's what a lot of these movies are. Like the culture references, the inside jokes are there for the parents. And then like the actual moment to moment, like slapstick character humor is there for the kids. So like when, when they're attributing stuff like Shawshank, they're not going for like, six-year-olds are going for the parents or the teenagers who were dragged there with their their siblings or their, their, their sons or daughters. And I think that is something that I, I think a Muppet movie would do really well is covering all the bases of this audience. If you had the kid humor with the Muppets and the ridiculous characters and them getting up into these antics in the prison, but you also have the, fa- the family appeal, the parent appeal of the parody of the humor of the references. I think sure, but... Fun. One last point, and then you guys can make your decision, is if you watch Walk the Line, it's an R-rated comedy parody. Walk Hard. Of, uh, walk Hard, sorry. Walk Hard. It's an R-rated comedy of uh, movies made for adults. And I don't think taking movies made for adults and parodying that for kids in a Muppet movie makes any sense. I think if you went your direction, no right, one Yeah, you've already explained this point, movie. so we... So yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of my thing. I, I, I think if you make a Muppet movie, it's got to at least reference things that kids will understand, people who want to see Muppet movies will understand. Your movie doesn't make any sense to the audience that you are trying to make a movie for. All right. Bobby, what are, what are your thoughts on these pitches? Um, I'm, to be honest, I'm a little split. Um, I think that 
I, I think that Johnny's is definitely an interesting take and I like it. I don't know how much the future aspect really adds to the movie. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with that, where it's like, I know he's trying to change it, but I don't know if that's necessarily the way to go. But then Tristan's, I, I think I like a Muppet, like the, what he described for his movie, but I don't know if it necessarily fits Cool Hand Luke. Um, so I'm a little split. Uh, if I had to go a certain direction, I, I think Tristan sounds maybe a little bit more fun. So maybe I'm going there, but honestly, I could go either way. Yeah, that's kind of what my thought was too, was like, neither one really sold me. So it's just like, which one was like, the one I had the least problems with essentially. And I feel like the big knock against Tristan, I feel like is the, you know, cultural references, like the parents that are, would take their kids to see a Muppet movie are going to be like our age or like slightly older. And so unless they're like a hardcore movie fan, they're really not going to know like cool hand Luke. Like maybe they'll get the Shawshank references and maybe uh, some of that. And so that was my problem with Johnny's It's more just like, it felt like the same movie, like it, like other than being set on Mars, it was essentially like beat for beat the same movie. And so it was just made me more. And I, I don't know if Alfonso Cuaron was necessarily like the right, choice i almost felt like like his movie felt more of like an action type movie where i I don't know i just didn't see that being an alfonso Cuaron movie but so it comes down to essentially what movie would i be more interested in seeing and what trailer would i find more entertaining and i guess for me it would be the muppet uh muppet cool hand luke that's fine i'll take one win yeah Yeah. give one distressing out of sympathy that's fine definitely not where we're going but no. you know I, I think it i think that was one of the weaker from yeah. kind of both of you kind of pitches but uh yeah basically that was, that was, it's tough to remake a classic and I, I i think when you remake a classic you have to keep a lot of the same elements yeah. so i was like well i'll just set it you know tell the same story but make a different background right. so that's what i wanted all right, and then we have our final pitch of the night, which is the Ooh. Constant Gardener, which was Johnny's pick, and Johnny just lost. So, Johnny, what movie are we – or who's going first, I guess I should say. I'll go first. This is my longest one, so I'll go. All right, the Constant um, Gardener – here, I, I'll give the background. Constant Gardener came out in 2005, uh, got a Rotten Tomatoes score of 84%. Uh and it won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actors, Actress. And the plot Rachel is ass- assigned to a new post, reserved British diplomat Justin Quayle relocates to Kenya with his lovely young wife, Tessa, played by Rachel Weiss, an activist for social justice. When Tessa is found murdered out in the wilderness, circumstances point to her friend, Dr. Arnold Bloom. But it is soon clear that he's not the killer. Grief-stricken and angry, Justin sends out to uncover the truth behind Tessa's murder, and in the process, he unearths some disturbing revelations. Alright, so The Constant Gardener is a great uh, John Le Carre book. Um, I have read the book. I have listened to the audible version of the book. Um, And I have seen the movie multiple times. It is a classic. And I know what Tristan's rule is, and it doesn't match uh, what the story tells, so I'm very excited to win again against Tristan. Um, so I, what I'm doing is I'm resurrecting a director's career. That director is Thomas Alfredson, who did Tinker Tailor, Tinker 
Taylor Soldier Spy, which was another uh, John Le Carre book. It was the last movie he did very well, which is based on the same author's work. He also did Let the Right One In, and he hasn't really done anything relevant in a while, but he did The Snowman, starring uh, Tristan's uh, William Shakespeare, Michael Fassbender, but I don't blame him for that, because if you know anything about the production of that movie, it's not the director's fault. He basically said, hey, like 25% of the script was not filmed. We had a very... uh, uh, basically limited uh, version of what we could do. So, my cast, I'll go into first. My Sandy Woodrow um, in the book is basically the first five chapters. It tells his story. It's played by Tim Roth. Um, My Tessa Abbott Quayle is played by Eva Green, who is... An amazing actress, probably most uh, well-known for being Best Bergen, Casino Royale. Like Justin Quayle, someone who starts off the film with, um, he is someone that is kind of disconnected from reality. He doesn't show a lot of emotion. By the end of the film, it is a very emotional character. I think the perfect actor for this role is Paul Bettany, uh, most famous for probably Blink Vision in WandaVision and... Uh, the Avengers movies. My uh, Gloria Woodrow, Sandy's wife, is played by Allison Dewey. My Dr. Arnold Bloom is played by Daniel Kalua. My Sir uh, Bernard Pellegrin is played by Colin Firth. And my Leslie, uh, who uh, is one of the detectives working the case, played by Leah Headley, or Leah Headey, played, uh, who is probably most famous for Game of Thrones roles. My Rob, who is the other detective working the case, is played by David Tennant, most famous for Jessica Jones and Doctor Who. And my Dr. Lorbeer is played by Mark Strong, who is a very famous actor and all of you should know his work. Um, the film starts off with a man and a woman dancing. The man compliments the younger woman's necklace. Thank you. My grandmother gave it to me. To smile, continuing to uh, dance and flirt. Cut to the man in a room with a young woman. Oh, wait. Cut to the man. Starting to unbutton. Cutting to a man uh, with a young woman starting to unbutton his shirt. An alarm sounds. The man just seen dancing wakes up in the bed, but not with the woman from his dream. The woman uh, in his bed is his wife, Gloria. The man who awakes, Sandy Woodrow, gets... uh, gets a phone call from work. Woodrow, we need you. Uh, We need you in the office immediately. It's urgent. Woodrow arrives uh, at the British diplomatic office in Kenya to meet with the head of their command, Sir Bernard Pellegrin. Pellegrin informs Woodrow that they got word from from Lake Torcana that two people were found dead, a young woman and her driver. The driver's head was cut off. The woman's uh, had her throat slashed. Why do I need to know this? Asked Woodrow. Pelgrin replies, it does not confirm yet, but it's almost certainly, uh, it looks almost certainly like the woman was uh, killed. The woman that was killed was Tessa Quayle, wife of our own, wife of Justin. Woodrow, began, Woodrow being friends with Justin, is told to give him the news, stepping into Justin's office as he 
waters that plant on his desk. He tells Justin the news. Justin's face stays emotionless. The two men, Justin and Woodrow, are sent to identify the body. It is Tessa who has been killed. When Justin sees her lying there, he has a flashback uh, of how they met. Justin uh, is brought back to reality by Woodrow puking into the sink nearby. The story continues with uh, interwoven flashbacks of Tessa and Justin's lives and the current storyline coming out that is believed she was having a, that she was having an affair uh, Tessa was having an affair with Dr. Arnold Bloom and he is the number one suspect of the murder. Justin starts to uncover old files and notes from his wife and he decides to carry on with what she started. Tessa was working with Dr. Bloom to take down KDH, a large pharmaceutical company, the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. Tessa believes a company that the, the three Bs is rushing a product through KDH to cure tuberculosis, but is killing people in Africa, having not been tested properly. Through, uh, through reveals in the film, Pellegrin is working with the three Bs and they send a hitman uh, out to kill Justin, played by, um, what's his not Superman. Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. Once they realize uh, he has pursued Tessa's mission. Um, you also reveal that uh, Sandy Woodrow is betraying Tessa because when he is unbuttoning his shirt in the original flashback, he is putting a file that she gave him into his shirt. Um that tells the story of what she is pursuing, and he gives that to Pellegrin, uh, played by Colin Firth, uh, who is the main villain. Um, the main story of the film is a is a cat and mouse chase between the human, or between the hitman and Justin, with a couple narrow escapes. At the point uh, in the second act, it is revealed that Doctor Arnold Bloom, uh, his body was found being crucified, his private parts cut off and stuffed into his mouth. Um, and, and crucified because he was known as the basically the Jesus of the Kenyan people. Um, but this clears him of suspicion, and he was and he was also tortured and killed on the same day Tessa was murdered. The film ends with Justin having finally getting gotten proof a handwritten document from Doctor Lorbeer um, in a small uh, Kenyan uh, village that the drug is killing people and is unsafe. Before Justin can escape the village and get to back to the plane, he is killed by the hitman who has been chasing him. The film ends with Pilgrim uh, giving an, a eulogy at Justin's funeral, cut to Woodrow, Justin's friend who had betrayed Tessa, seeing a commercial for KDH for it, on his television in the office. He grabs his gun at, of the... Uh, at, that is in the desk drawer of his office, and he kills himself. That is the end of my my film. The drug has been um, put out into the world, even though it has been tested and proved to kill people, and Woodrow feeling guilty and remorse for betraying Tessa, the woman he thought he loved, um, he kills himself. So that is my movie. If you've seen the actual movie or read the book, uh, there are a couple changes of the elements here. The book has more of a happy ending, but I want to go with something more realistic to what the story tells. So that is uh, Woodrow killing himself and the drug actually being released 
because that's something that happens in the world every day. African uh, test subjects in third world countries are uh, being basically murdered by pharmaceutical companies. And that is the aspect of this film that is very important and something that holds up well. Um, and uh, I want to keep in my movie, but instead of one man being able to change the world, it shows that if you do not trust each other, um, like Sandy, not uh, being trust or Tessa uh, trusting the wrong person and not trusting her husband and Sandy trusting Pellegrin, everyone putting their trust in the wrong place leads to uh, terrible, terrible uh, side effects. So that is my film. All right, Tristan, what's your concert gardener pitch? So if you guys have followed along, Johnny talked some shit on it, but my rule usage here is making this a dad movie. And I think it fits for a dad movie because I think dad movies, some of them at least tend to be like these globe-trotting thrillers or almost like spy thrillers where it's like they're going from one place to another. You get these kind of big... Uh, you're seeing these beautiful landscapes and beautiful foreign countries and you're also getting like a crime thrill mystery around it. So I think that's why I went with this in my dad movie. And my director for the dad movie is Sam Mendes. He recently did 1917, which I'm pretty sure was made exclusively for dads and watched only by dads. Uh, and he also did Skyfall, which was, uh, I mean, James Bond movies are, James Bond movies are essentially dad movies, and he made a good one on Skyfall. And I also think Skyfall, like I said, went for that kind of globetrotting, large-scale kind of story, and I want to have that in, in a way, and this I'll get into it a bit when I go along here. But my cast, I have Hugh Jackman as an Australian diplomat named Justin Quayle. He travels to South Africa with his wife, Tessa, played by Nicole Kidman. Uh, she's a civil rights activist who is involved in a movement in South Africa, and she kind of comes along with him, and we don't, at the beginning, know much about her motivations. We just know that she's this civil rights agent, and she's married to Hugh Jackman's character. Uh, and throughout the movie, uh, I also have a couple other roles as the guy the, that uh, Hugh Jackman's answering to, sort of like the higher-up of the government that he's talking to. He's played by John Noble. I think Johnny mentioned that dad movies like to have these characters, actors, where you're like, oh, what's that guy from that thing? And then my dad loves to go on like the X-ray thing on Amazon and be like, oh, who's that guy? And then go and look and find him. <laughs> so I think John Noble ha is that kind of guy where he's like, oh, the guy from Lord of the Rings, or the guy who is shut up on the boys or the guy who's on fringe he's like that kind of guy who's in those movies i also had as a hitman who's kind of hunting down hugh jackman's character and he was also involved in the death of tessa's character uh played by colin farrell and in a small role is like this american uh diplomat who's kind of spying on them throughout the movies played by brad pitt i feel it's like a movie that brad pitt would like produce and then put himself in like one of those small roles he likes to do once in a while and I feel like it's always a good sign of a dad movie when it's like, oh, produced by Brad Pitt. You're like, oh, it's one of those ones. So uh, the way my timeline kind of plays out is that all of Justin's storylines are just like straightforward A to B, like chronological storytelling. And then when we get Tessa's scenes, they're kind of in like reverse order. Like the first scene we see of her is like right before she dies. And then the next scene we see of her is like a few hours earlier. We just kind of like slowly moving back as we get more answers to what she was really doing, what her motivations were. And as T. Jackman's character is kind of uncovering the truth in his in his storyline. So when uh, Tessa's murdered T. Jackman's character, uh, Justin's convinced that there was some kind of political motivation behind it, so he begins investigating it. Meanwhile, we're learning through flashbacks that Tessa was involved in some kind of investigation into uh, pharmaceutical companies who are testing drugs 
in Africa. And uh, we get throughout this movie these reveals of Hugh Jackman sort of getting these threatening phone calls from John Noble. Like at first, they're just kind of comforting. He's like this father figure to Hugh Jackman. We get like they worked together a lot in the past. They know each other pretty well. But then as Hugh Jackman begins to uncover the truth of this pharmaceutical company he was working in Africa, the relationship becomes a lot more threatening, a lot more intense. So you get that kind of like fatherly relationship that's turned bad between John Noble and Hugh Jackman. I think that would be really interesting. And the turn we get is that Brad Pitt's character, the one who's been following him along that you think is kind of like working for the American government and working against them, is one of the good guys. And they end up teaming up with him towards the end to uh, work towards to getting this truth out. And Count Farrell is, like I mentioned, the hitman is hunting him down. So they kind of work against him throughout this ticking clock. And within Tessa's timeline, Count Farrell is also involved there. Like we learn that he was essentially hired on by John Noble to keep this couple in check and to make sure that none of them got too close to what they were doing out here because he was very suspicious about Tessa's motivations for coming out. And when she got too close to the truth, she was taken out. And we learned that John Noble, the guy that Hugh Jackman kind of looked up to throughout the story, was behind it. And he was involved financially in benefiting from this drug testing that was happening out in South Africa. So we get this kind of dark ending where he uncovers the truth of his wife's history and the truth behind this drug testing thing. But he essentially can't tell anyone because if he does, like they're going to come and crack him down. He essentially just has to live out on his own with the answers to this question and kind of be haunted by that. I think that's a good uh, dead ending where you just left, like prisoners, sort of prisoners had that little bit of an open ending where it's like, oh, are they going to save him or are they not going to save him? And I think prisoners is a good example of like a dead movie ending that is still kind of a darker unanswered ending. So that's what I went for with my version of Constant Gardener, like a nice dad mystery thriller from Sam Mendes. All right, Bobby, any questions for them? No, I think I'm just ready to hear him fight. Yeah, same. All right, I'm putting five minutes on the clock, and then I might stop it before then. Who knows? We'll see. All right, here's my thing. If you're making a dad movie, I think you need to make something a little safer. I think you need to make something that dads um, won't think is, like, too violent or too thought-provoking in terms of, like, political aspects. The story of The Constant Gardener is that they are um, basically murdering African children in third world countries like Kenya, not like South Africa, which is the only country in, in Africa that maybe is more developed than the rest of the uh, continent, that um, these people are dying for useless reason reasons for um, for pharmaceutical companies to basically take advantage. They want to stop the world of this future TV crisis. Um, it's it's a film that, if you read the book, sure, at, at its surface, if you don't know anything about it, sounds like a dad movie. It's a spy thriller uh, written by John Lucare, um, sure. But it's a film that deals with race. It's a film that deals with uh, children dying. It, it, it is a film that deals with corporations um, taking advantages of third world countries. It's a film that literally has the main character's wife raped, murdered, and uh, the doctor that she is supposedly having an affair with from the media has his private parts cut off, put into his mouth, and he is crucified, and he is gay, and that is the reason that these horrible things that have happened to him 
He is literally disemboweled. I don't think that making a film for dads involves such horrific scenes that I think are necessary to the story that this original uh, book and movie tell. I don't think that's a dad movie. I don't think it's necessary to the story. I don't think it is 100% necessary to the story. Have you ever read the book? No, I have. Have you ever seen the movie? No, probably not. I have. I have. I've seen the movie. Yeah, it's not a book podcast. I'm talking about making a good movie, and like I might not capture every single little element from the book that you like, but that's not what an animation does. It takes the core story, it takes the themes, and it explores them like mine does. The important elements are here. You have the relationship family, you have the dragging of the kids, you have the like the journey of the kids in a, a um in South Africa, which is an established country, which is not Kenya, which is a third world country where well, kids are point, dying. The, the whole point of my pitch is that like it's centralized in South Africa, but I mentioned this globe trotting because it kinda takes them throughout Africa and you see a lot of different versions of Africa. Like we see a lot of African movies as like this tribal, like worn down kind of thing. And I wanna show it a little bit differently. I wanna see like the contrast of South Africa as this privileged place the skyscrapers comparatively to these falling apart cities that are not that far away from south from like the center hub of south africa and even south africa has like such a variety of landscapes and and cultures and i want to lean into that privilege like south africa is this big privileged kind of skyscraper uh country comparatively to other countries around it and the the poisoning of the kids not happening in south africa like it's a south african it, they're based in South Africa, but the poisoning is happening like outside of the country of South Africa. It's like coming from South Africa Two outward minutes. to other countries. So you know, so you're getting the element of South Africa is this privileged country that's well, taking advantage of the countries around it. If, and if Australia you, and if, America are just kind of thrown into the middle yeah, of it. And... If, if you knew anything about the original story, your words doesn't make any sense. And I don't know if that that's why well, it's a Maybe it doesn't. Yeah, but it's a remake. But I think the most important aspects of the film are are trust. And I think what I love this book. I love this movie. But what it's missing is that everything feels so easy to Justin, the main character. And what I really want to add to make this movie better is the no country for old men aspect of having a, a great villain in pursuit of, of the main character. And I think that in the original, it kind of tells a story of these this third world country is taking advantage of by this pharmaceutical company children are dying women are dying this woman was murdered because they didn't take uh enough credit they gave her this drug that murdered her um and and tessa is firmly behind that that is an important element of the story none of that is a dad movie that is so far away from being something that you pitch because a dad movie is very safe it's it's something that you can get into philosophy, but you can't actually get into brutal aspects. And my and That's the story exactly what mine does. No, but the story of this movie is brutal. It's something that involves trust. I think changing the aspects of this is a movie about trust. This is a movie that Sandy Woodrow is someone that uh, the main character trusts, and the main character's wife trusts, and they give all the information to. She is murdered because. She put her trust in the wrong person. Justin, in the end, is murdered because he put his uh, he was never trusted by his wife. Um, Pellegrin ends up sending this hitman after them because he was never uh, because Sandy, who loved Tessa, should not have trusted. And I think it's a great story element. I think it's a great movie. 
I think my movie tells more of an important story. I think it affects um, how the world looks at pharmaceutical companies and anything that you bring in political, which this movie is super important in terms of political awareness. If you bring in political awareness to a dad movie, I think that does not make it a dad movie. And I think your um, All right, if you're story done, I'm going to go on a little bit. Go on, because your movie sucks. <laughs> and you don't, know the, book, you don't know the about, story. You don't know anything about this fucking You mentioned that the movie's about property. trust, and mine's absolutely about trust. It's about Hugh Jackman's character just not being able Does to Does he die at the end? What I'm saying it's about trust. It's about Hugh Jackman not trusting Tessa, make, wondering if she had some ulterior motive of coming with him and having this drive to uncover the truth about her, whether, and he could have just trusted his wife, but he's driven on this kind of madhouse hunt to figure out the truth because but he is not, her. it's, it's not, if and you, you really, also if have, you know, if you, you know, also anything have the element about of the story, trusting, I, I'm, I'm adapting it to a new movie. I'm not adapting your story. Um, John, Noble, he, trusts John Noble's, he trusts John story. Noble's character and doesn't trust Brad Pitt's character. And he should have done the opposite. He should have not trusted, John Noble, because John Noble is the one that turns against him, and he should have trusted Brad Pitt. Like, trust is everywhere throughout my movie. That's the whole theme of my movie. And I think you mentioned that dad movies don't have politics, and I think that they do. They just don't get into them in any deep level. Like, they're there on the surface, but they're not there in any real deep way. Like, you mentioned that as, like, a a key dad movie, and that has (laughs) tons of political elements in it. And they're not, like, fully deeply explored to the tiniest elements, but they're there just enough to give the dad something to be, like, thinking they're – you mentioned philosophizing in dad movies. That was something you were big about in years. Philosophizing is political, and mine has that in here too. Like dad Except yours has the wrong shit. Your movie out. is all about how he should have trusted Brad Pitt, who's the American. And the Americans are all-knowing, all-powerful. This movie is a fucking takedown of America and Britain mm-hmm. and all of the first world countries that yeah, teaches that's why shit directly on, on African States. countries. Your movie is like, hey, if they trusted the American, they would have been fine. That is so fucking disrespectful to that's the actual about. book. It that's is same, completely, man. it's fucking bullshit. Your movie's fucking right, think, shit. All right. Yeah, yeah. We, got our, we got our, I think we're good. And we're at like two hours. And Yeah, we're at like you know, over two and a half hours. So we, me and- Look, all, all I'll say is this. If you've ever read the source material, if you've ever seen the original movie, this film is something that takes down the British. We, and we know what you yeah, we got we heard it. you. And we got it. We got, got it. it. Yeah, sure. We got it. Right, we got yeah. it. Yeah, but this fucker, but Sam Mendes, like, who's just going to make a love letter to Britain. Just make a nice dad movie. That's literally what I wanted. And Britain governments. Yeah, bad dad movie. Yeah, yeah, great dad movie is when a doctor who is gay gets his dick cut off and Good stuffed into his right. own no. mouth. Yeah, yeah take that movie and make the story. We're good. We got it. We got it. So me and Bobby were texting during our pitches. Yeah, Joe, just, just say it. You just can just go. All right. We're on the same page. So basically, uh, I, I think me and uh, uh, Bobby are of the same mentality that Johnny was almost too much of a slave to being a fan of the book and the movie. And, like, any deviation from the book or any deviation from the original movie other than the small changes he made he wasn't a fan of. For me and Bobby, we're on the same page of we don't really know this story. You know, we don't know this book. Uh, There are movies like Michael Clayton that are, you know, the dad movies that have the political elements. 
and at the end of the day the movie that more interested me that I would rather see and I think the world at large would rather see is Tristan's uh uh Gardner dad movie yeah like I I got a couple of wins in it by the gun yeah I mean unfortunately I, I think I, I think it's unfortunate basically based on the the movie choices that like the order it went in because this was a lot closer than yeah. uh than Johnny winning four to one early and then you just you know it wasn't just a couple of pity points for sure but Johnny is is missing right now, even though he He's just won. Doing... He just, you know. Yeah, I think that's a forfeit. If you're not here for the, for yeah. the final call, you lose. Yeah. <laughs> he's gonna be All mad, right. even though he just still won and held the championship belt that he's about to get in a couple days. Yeah. Um, All but right. uh, what's Tristan uh, as the you know contender? So we can wrap this up. What are your final thoughts? Look, Johnny had some good pitches, I guess, once in a while, but. Viewers take note because you witnessed the worst call in the history of movie changeup with his Shakespearean love uh, victory. You know, that's going to be looked back on in the future when we're all, you know, million views. Everyone's paying for us on Patreon. We're living in mansions, you know, yeah. purely off of the Patreon donations for movie changeup. They're going to look back and be like, remember that episode when Tristan gave a great. When Tristan sucked and still and didn't get a. Fuck you. Okay. Johnny, you just won. Johnny, what are your thoughts on winning and holding the championship belt? Fuck you. I don't give a shit about that. I should have won 7-0. Fuck you. You guys are bad judges. My Kelsey Gardner pitch stuck true to the original concept. It It made a good movie. (laughs) Yes, stuck is a word. And here's my thing. You guys don't know shit about anything. If you guys fucking were knowledgeable about anything, I would have won every single pitch. And instead, I only won four to three, which is trash. And here's my my other thing. Look, The Concert Gardener is a movie that is not for dads, if you know anything about it. And you guys chose this fucking dumbasses bad pitch. It sounded like you just made the constant gardener, though. Oh, oh, it sounds like I made the movie that should have been already made. And then this guy made a movie about fucking Muppets, for all I care. Johnny, what was your favorite pitch of Tristan? (laughs) Tristan sucks. I don't fucking care about any of his pitches. (laughs) No, his pitches all sucked. I should have won. 7-0. 7-0. Um, his pitches were literally all bad. Tristan did not deserve to be here. Bobby deserved to be here. Tristan is the worst of the four of all of us. Ooh, and wow. I think Bobby um, was the rightful um, disciple to face me for the championship. Tristan started this rivalry, and I will crush it. Oh, did I lose? Because I think I won. I said um, Bobby here's lost. My you're, thing. you're talking shit like Bobby's right for winner and Bobby lost. You know, and I took Bobby the around in the end. Lost. Like, you lost Bobby won by one point. Oh, that's so weird because I think I remember Bobby only losing because every single other person on the show except for Joe chose his pitch over yours. So honestly, if I am going full on champion mode. Bobby deserves a fucking title shot, and I don't care if it's the next match we face. Bobby doesn't need a second win. Bobby deserves a title shot. Tristan is unworthy. Joe is unworthy. I want to face Bobby. 
Bobby is the rightful fucking heir to the championship that I want to beat him. He is the only person that has beat me since the original episode of this show. Tristan is not worthy. Take that Drew Barrymore shirt and scream for the heavens because you are useless. And Joe, you suck. Bobby, I want you. I want to face you. You are worthy of a championship match, and I challenge you. I don't care if you win your next match. I challenge Bobby to a championship I mean, fight. I My don't know if belt will be here, and I will face Bobby next time we fight. I want it to be a championship match. Hey, you know what? I'm always up for a championship match. I do wish, you know, I think as a fair. I will show say that as... I should have won a couple matches to get there, but uh, I don't know if I'm going to be a hundred percent up, you know, to make this call. Me and you. I will say, we'll I, I, I don't know Tristan's thoughts, but I will say the reason because uh, I was the one that cre- came up with this whole concept of do you have to win two in a row before you face a championship? Is I didn't think it was necessarily fair for Johnny or whoever the champion was to lose the championship to someone on like a fluke win that maybe they had a record of like four and seven and they like haven't been doing well until like win the championship on a fluke win. However, if Johnny is willing to put his championship on the line, I I don't know Tristan's thoughts. I'm fully okay with your next match, whatever anyone's record is before that, especially considering you've beat him to be a championship match. I'm feeling similarly. If Johnny's willing to put that, Johnny wants to put his belt on the line. If you want to put it on the line, I'm all in. Anything to get Johnny my belt on the line. Next fight, I want Bobby. Wait, I was saying next fight. No, next next fight that we face. Next fight will be whatever whatever we face. I want the championship to be on the line. I want Bobby, and I want to crush his soul. I want Bobby to get his soul sucked. Mortal Kombat <laughs> right, 2021. Not Ghostbusters. So we have a little bit breaks between championship matches. Next week is supposed to be me versus Bobby. So we can do that. And then we can do me versus Tristan. And then we can do Bobby versus Johnny for the championship. I That's want good for me. It. My brother, the loser of the next championship match. Bobby, I'm going to come at you with the hammer of Thor! I will win, but I want Bobby next. He beat me. Some people call me a a sore loser for my loss against Bobby. That's fine. I didn't come at it with my full heart. Next time I face Bobby, it will be for the championship. I will come at him with my best. And I am ready for it, and I want it. All right. All right. So full heel mode, Johnny. We're going for it. I'm all in. All right. I'm a, I, think... I, I take that challenge for sure. So yeah, hey, we'll all, all I want to do is see Johnny lose as soon as possible. So I'm rooting for Bobby, and I can't say I'm going to be objective during the judging, but I'll try my best. You know, I, I, I'm an yeah. Tristan's ass actually, will just pick Bobby. Unlike it's fine. Johnny, I He's actually I have good taste in movies, so I'm going to try my best to be honest with my judging when I judge next week. Unlike the judges this week, who clearly just wanted to drag out Johnny's championship run a little bit longer. You know, I'm no Bobby wanted to get this championship shot, so 
you go. Go. Uh, give me that sympathy vote. Go ahead, Grabby. Go ahead. Get get your little championship chat. Oh, right Tristan right. sucks at this. He's never. All right. This me, podcast right, has been two hours and forty five minutes. I'm yeah. just gonna say next week, me versus Bobby. Uh, no idea what the theme is, what the plan is, but that's what it's gonna be. Me versus Bobby. Everyone have a great night. See ya next time.